Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 70 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other voice you will hear, as always, is the co-host of the show, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we are in, I don't know if this is quite yet the dog, I don't know when they, they always say the phrase the dog days of summer, but what would be the dog days of summer? Would that be the early days of the summer? Would that be the late days of the summer? What what are the dog days, Matt? These are like the puppy days of summer. Um, I think (laughs) the dog days are like, I always took it to me like the dead middle of summer when it's hot and everyone is just, just like, oh, I've, I've sweat so much. But but you know since <laughs> since you know climate change and whatnot that's you know that's all the time now so we're always in the dog days of summer Trevor yeah. all the time <laughs> this podcast is always about those dog days but uh, if you want to revisit all the various days that we've had on through the years before I get to the show I always like to do up top the quick little plug of just plugging our feeds because again if you're listening to the pro wrestling only feed but you just want to listen to us on our own feed we have a separate through the years feed T-H-R-O-H just search that on your podcast app of choice and if you're listening to us just on the through the years feed but you you should try check out uh, the pro wrestling only podcast feed because there's lots of great podcasts old and young past and present there you should check that out and of course we are also on youtube for the one or two people that continue to watch the shows or listen to the shows i guess still it's just still image with uh the voice uh, the recording of the show we're also on youtube so with that out of the way matt next step next uh, next stop tiktok <laughs> 30 second chunks that's right no, those this is how down this is how old i am matt i don't even know i don't know if there's a limit to tiktoks i don't even know exactly what tiktok is other than it's videos i uh you know no I, same I, I same le- same same yeah i i, I really don't <laughs> I left the video, uh, the tweet video style behind with Vine and whatever that WWE one was that they owned part of that flamed out quickly. Th- those were my ride or dies, Matt, and I, I, I just can't. I can't accept another one into my heart. I, I've tried too many. But, uh, you know, I just, had o- the, I just had the name of the WWE one on the top of my head, and then I lost it again. So that's <laughs> – so we're both old. Woo! But – uh we always at this point I always like to cover the news happened between the last Ring of Honor show we covered and the one that we're covering tonight. And this episode we actually have a fair bit of uh, news that happened or just interesting little tidbits. Hopefully interesting. I'll go off first off, Matt, to Pro Wrestling Insider. They wrote in a surprising return, Jay and Mark Briscoe appeared for Hellaware Championship Wrestling in Delaware over the weekend, facing each other. The two had been out since August 2004 when Mark was injured in a motorcycle accident, hurting his shoulder. Ring of Honor came up with a storyline concussion to cover Jay's exodus from the company as he was helping watch over Mark and didn't want to wrestle without him. When asked, uh, when asked about the potential of a Br- Briscoe's return, Gabe Sapolsky said, quote, It caught me by surprise that Jay and Mark Briscoe returned to action. Delaware. I'm hoping they were just trying to get into ring shape to return to Ring of Honor. I have been in contact with the family, and there is an offer on the table for them to return to Ring of Honor. I haven't heard from them one way or the other. From what I hear, they are busy having fun as 21-year-olds and catching up on everything they missed the last few years because they were wrestling. The last I heard, Mark's shoulder was still healing up and wasn't 100% yet, but I don't know what the current status is. As soon as they are ready to return, they'll be back in Ring of Honor. So, Matt, after reading this, I checked Cage Match, and, you know, Cage Match might miss some matches, but, like, Jay and Mark, they weren't, like, doing a heavy schedule, but they did wrestle, like, from this point on, you know, probably, like, 
you know, at least once a month, probably after maybe a month or two from this point. And yet they don't come back to Ring of Honor till like late February 2006. So there's like this seven, eight month gap, you know, where they're kind of dabbling in wrestling. Maybe they just didn't want to be in full time yet. So they didn't come back to Ring of Honor at that point. But it, I, I, I kind of forgot that, that there was this kind of like weird middle ground where they were kind of dabbling. They were working Jersey All Pro and a promotion I'll get to in just a second. But they do that for like over half a year before they go back to Ring of Honor. So it was, ended up being good for ROH because by the time they got back, they were like on another level physically um, and like intensity wise. So it actually worked out for ROH that they could sort of get their skills back and then some before they re-debuted. Yeah, and so that other promotion I was talking about where they, they – I think that during this run they became G- Jersey All-Pro Tag Champs and they also became champs of an indie at this time. Johnny Cash, I believe, ran it called uh, Pro Wrestling Unplugged. And uh, they were in the news with some R- Ring of Honor-related news at this time too for a different reason. I'll go to uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch. Our video, headed by former Ring of Honor promoter Rob Feinstein, announced a deal to obtain partial ownership in the Pro Wrestling Unplugged promotion. After taking time away from the spotlight following the underage sex scandal in March of 2004 that drove him from Ring of Honor, Feinstein is getting back into the pro wrestling market by attaching his company, RF Video, to the rebranded PWU. Quote, PWU will feature a great mix of young and established indie talent to provide a fresh and entertaining show for wrestling fans, Feinstein stated in a press release describing the rebranded effort. RF Video is hungry again and wants to prove itself to each and every wrestling fan. Also stated in the press release, the new PWU will be based in Philadelphia, but the company will be seeking alternative venues outside of Philadelphia to run shows. The expected uh, talent pool includes Jay Lethal, Azriel, Jack Evans, Homicide, Steve Carino, and other local indie talents. And then quickly going to The Observer, they wrote about the same story. As expected, Rob Feinstein announced as soon as his non-compete with Ring of Honor was over that he was going back to promoting wrestling with Johnny Cashmere's Philadelphia-based Pro Wrestling Unplugged promotion. The first show under the combined ownership will be July 30th at the Animal House in Philadelphia. Animal House? Anyway, um, and they're planning to expand out of the market. It only took a short period of time between the announcement of RF Video as co-owners and Feinstein talking about being back running a company and bad heat coming, like a few hours. Within the day, Kashmir sent out a subsequent press release apologizing for the misleading earlier release and claiming that it is RF Video that is part of the ownership group but it is Doug Gentry representing RF Video and that Feinstein has no front office involvement in the company. The second release said Feinstein is only involved in tape distribution no matter how it is publicly pr- publicly portrayed, it almost seems certain of some sort of prom- of a promotional war over dates and talent with Ring of Honor, with F- which Feinstein was the original money behind, before largely being forced out in the wake of his being caught on camera by a Philadelphia news station as he was knocking on the door of the supposed home setup for a sting of people who contact underage boys through the internet. Dear God, Dave Meltzer, get a short sentence. Anyway. Also, uh, Dave Meltzer, people- like, why do you have to make us explain that in such detail again? I mean, listen, we already spent like seven hours doing it. <laughs> the At Our Best episode for anyone that wants the most exhaustive podcast three hours literally up top about that but moving on Dave finishes up with for people who expect that nobody will work with Feinstein because of his publicity well this is wrestling and you'll be in for a lesson maybe one or two guys won't but social morality isn't a major issue in the wrestling industry it's the doing business with people outside of wrestling that will be the quagmire for a company where it's publicly claimed he's involved in ownership 
So, Matt, um, I don't know exactly. You know, uh, this is not this is the this is the Ring of Honor retrospective podcast, not a Pro Wrestling Unplugged retrospective podcast. I I don't know exactly when uh, like they kind of petered out, but clearly we know they did not become like a massive mega ND and Dave's fears here of there being a, like a talent war between the two promotions. Like um, I looked at some of the cards for like the early 2006 PWU shows, you know, like the Briscoes are still working there. And it seems to be like a mix of a lot of guys that like were in ring of honor, but kind of were naturally phased out like the SAT and then guys like homicide, the Briscoes, you know, and then you'd of course get Teddy Hart in there. Cause of course Teddy Hart would be in there, but in that sense, I think this became like, you know, people were more scared that this was going to be like some huge war. People would have to pick a side and clearly nothing like that came of it. But I do, what I did find was hilarious was this was literally like a repeat of the Ring of Honor saga where, you know, Rob's like, hey, I'm kind of involved in this thing. And then immediately they're like, uh, no, it's just Doug Gentry. It's just, it's just Doug Gentry. Uh, it's not Rob at all. He just, he just watches. He, he doesn't do anything. He's, he's in the corner somewhere. Like, it's amazing they literally do the same thing again. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the main thing that I think probably hurt uh, Pro Wrestling Unplugged is that, you know – Nobody wanted to go to a wrestling show where the microphones were unplugged, so the wrestlers had to shout <laughs> all their promos, and you know you couldn't have any house lights. and And Jeff Jarrett was there all the time because of the acoustic guitars. Um, <laughs> no, but um, but yeah, no, that that was definitely the standout uh, thing to me was was they were like, oh yeah, I mean, yes. Rob Feinstein does own the company, but he's not involved at all. Like <laughs> you know, like like that's that's very funny. Otherwise, yeah, PWU you did not make it make an impact. Yeah, 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 no pun intended. You are you are right that it did not. He, he owns a partial stake in the company. Um, his his company distributes the tapes. The guy who wor- works for our video is is definitely involved. But other than that, Rob has no involvement in PWU. Like, okay, th- that means a lot. Um, yeah, and, like, and, I, and I love the concept of like, because obviously Johnny Cashmere said that, but you got to figure that Rob Feinstein, you know, as part owner of PWU, was like. You know, yeah, just say that. Just say I'm not involved. It's fine. Like, it's just just the entire entire conversation sounds really funny to me. And the other thing I will say is, um, you know, recently, you know, with some developments in the UK wrestling scene, people being rightly disappointed with uh, promotions like OTT kind of not maybe – not doing everything they kind of said they were going to do a year ago when the speaking out claims happened. You know, a lot of people have been down on speaking out and saying, you know, did it really make much of an impact? You know, was it all for nothing? But it definitely I will seems say, to make an impact on some individuals, um, for yes, sure. Yes, definitely. Yes, and I yes. will say, going to what Dave ended here, where he's like, you know, he's basically saying, look, you shouldn't be surprised that all these guys, you know, like homicide and, you know, are all going to work with Rob Feinstein like a year after this giant scandal. I will say... I do think the wrestling culture, while far from perfect, is better and different because I do think if this happened today, you wouldn't see this many, like, name indie talent working for a pro wrestling unplugged. Like, um, there would be some people that cross the line, but I don't – like, if you look, there's, like, Steve Carino, Homicide, like, a bunch of – the Briscoes, Asriel, like, Jack Evans, like, a bunch of guys worked there, and it was – and everyone was just like, well, what do you expect? It's the wrestling industry. And I do think more guys today in that situation would be like, I'm not going to work for this place. I would I would tend to agree. You know, I think that 
you can't necessarily be sure that that would be for moral reasons or just, um, you know, their own self-interest also, you know what I mean? But you're right. I think that, that, you know, people would, would steer clearer (laughs) of getting themselves involved in a promotion like that. I mean, there would at least be heat. Like I I believe we, we, we hold people in wrestling out to a slightly higher moral standard. where back then I think Dave's reaction was just kind of the norm, which was shrug your shoulders and be like, yeah, it's scummy, but it's wrestling. What do you expect? Where now I think we expect like a slight bit more from wrestling, which is progress when at a time when so many things seem to be sliding the other way, at least wrestling in my lifetime is a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, I mean, partially because, you know, the, the society has moved. In that direction. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, this is the era where, like, Harvey Weinstein's uh, crimes were, like, an open secret, right? And, like, you know, people would go on little interviews and make allusions to it. Like, it's not like they, they yeah. were – everyone, nobody knew back, you know, about him, and yet he didn't really face any consequences for it for over a decade after this. You know what I mean? Like, stuff like mm-hmm. that, right? Um, Bill Cosby. Yeah. Um Right. Yeah, I mean, that was another again open. That was an open secret, right? And um, yeah. until the, you know, until what Hannibal Burris did his uh, did his uh, comedy routine about it, people yeah. really didn't. He didn't really get the scrutiny that um, that you know you certainly would now for for accusations like that. Mm-hmm. So so it's not just wrestling, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And now that we've brought everyone down, we can feed them the dessert after the – when we made them eat their vegetables, now the more fun part of the news, which was something I kind of forgot about. But um, this was – and again, this is one of those stories which it seems sometimes we stumble on stories that become timely 15, 16 years later because we're doing this not that long after like another wave of WWE releases. And of course, this is far from the first time because – so right around this time in, in Ring of Honor, I mean, in wrestling history, at the time we're covering mid two thousand five, WWE did a famous big, you know, Black Friday. Oh, I don't remember if it was Friday, but one of those big days of releases. And uh, Dave Meltzer did an entire little thing in an issue of the Observer at the time, going over each wrestler and where he thought they would go. So I've just taken the ones where he thought they might have had a shot at going to Ring of Honor because I thought this was interesting. So going to the Observer first, he went to Charlie Haas. He said, major interest by Zero One Max. Some in TNA have interest in him, but it's not a lock either way. Ring of Honor would take him, but there are questions about him being too big for most of their major stars, which is kind of a funny thing to think. And of course, Charlie Haas would end up going to Ring of Honor, just not in the Gabe Sapolsky era. But uh, And he didn't stand out as being way too big. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I mean, Ring of Honor <laughs> would be booking Abyss soon. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, but, Morishima. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, next up, another guy that's in the news right now, the Dudleys, uh, get, uh, Dave Meltzer wrote, Ring of Honor is unlikely aside from perhaps a one shot at most because of their price range. But then when he went to Spike Dudley, he said, because he was an ECW star and is such an unselfish worker, he'll get a good shot in Ring of Honor. TNA could go either way. Don't see much for him in Japan. If he keeps his price low, and he likely will, he could get a good deal of indie bookings. And if the ECW reunion circuit ever opens up, he'll have a spot there. And Dave would again write in a different issue like that he thought the two biggest, um, most likely guys from these releases to go to Ring of Honor would be uh, Akio, a.k.a. Jimmy Yang, which – he would be right about and spike Dudley. Like he seemed fairly confident that he, spike Dudley would get a shot in and then ring of honor. And he never does. In fact, he ends up going to TNA in 2006 as a brother runt. If I remember correctly. Yeah. I mean, but, I mean, maybe if, maybe if it wasn't for the TNA thing, he would have 
gone to ROH. I don't know. Like, I mean, uh, I, I did not at the time think that. You know, even though Dave was reporting it, it didn't occur to me that Spike Dudley would come into ROH and get a push or of any kind. But, um, but I guess it is possible that you know because the Dudleys went to went to TNA and you know got you know pretty big push there. Um, that just made sense for uh, for Spike to follow them along. I don't know if it's ever happened elsewhere, but I would have really liked to have seen a Samoa Joe Spike Dudley match. I think that would have been fun. You know, such a uh, clash. It's, it's worth looking up. Um, yeah. if that happened, because it wouldn't shock me at all. I mean, definitely, I mean, they were both in TNA for a while, and obviously uh, any indie could have booked that match. But uh, next we'll go to Akio, a.k.a. Jimmy Yang. Dave writes, there is much bitterness over how he left TNA, so that door is more closed than you'd imagine. It's likely he'll work all Japan and in between become a regular with Ring of Honor. And in fact, he would, and we'll get to his... Uh, his run in Ring of Honor, but I remember people being kind of underwhelmed by uh, Jimmy Yang's run yeah. in Ring of Honor. By the way, I, ju- I just saw um, that at the very least, um, Brother Runt was in a four-way Monsters Ball match with Samoa Joe at one of the Bound for Glory shows. So there Ooh. you go. That's what you were. That's what you were looking for right there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you love the Monsters <laughs> Ball matches. <laughs> I remember there was at least a couple of those that were pretty good. Probably both involving yeah. Samoa Joe, but uh, yeah. But then there was also Ring Honor was interested in one other guy that Dave didn't touch on here, apparently, going to PW Insider. Ring of Honor announced that they have opened up negotiations with former ECW world champion Rhino, although I am under the belief he wouldn't be coming in anytime soon. Ring of Honor is interested in several of the released WWE talents to work with and also do shoot interviews. And in fact, the Ring of Honor website, they actually went so far as to write it on the website, because this is direct from the Ring of Honor website. Negotiations continue with Rhino, although no dates are set. Rhino recently watched several new Ring of Honor home releases and was impressed with the style of action. So this is another guy that does make appearances in the post-Sapolsky world, but another guy goes to TNA. I think he never comes to a Ring of Honor during this era. It would have been interesting to see if there was a spot, like how he would have fit in with the world of a 2005 Ring of Honor. In some ways, I think having TNA there to scoop these guys up actually benefited ROH, at least artistically. I don't know about for business, but like in the sense of it allowed ROH to not go overboard on all of these guys that were let go by WWE. Not that they all, not that none of them would have been good, but you know, it helped ROH keep its identity as not the promotion that does that. You know what I mean? That like yeah. just takes a guy when WWE lets him go and gives him a push because he was on TV. You know, that was that was TNA's thing. ROH got yeah. to actually <laughs> promote a bunch of new guys. You know, they did it a few times with with, with WWE guys. Obviously, we're looking at James Gibson right now as we review these shows, but um, but it wasn't like that was an overwhelming part of their upper card ever you know what i mean yeah absolutely they 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 generally tried to bring in wwe guys that were like a fit for the company which is why a guy like rhino would be interesting because like i'm not sure i could see it going either way but a guy like james gibson you go yes he's a former wwe guy but he's also just a natural fit for the product ring of honor is already trying to put on but yeah like a guy like charlie haas you would look at and go I don't think that's a natural fit. Like maybe it w- could have worked if the right gimmick or whatever, but like that doesn't feel like a nat- – that feels like if they had brought him in that you're just bringing him in because, hey, he's a WWE release. Right. 
But uh, that brings us to the show we are covering today. The summer of Summer of Punk continues with Sign of Dishonor. It took p- place July 8th, 2005 at the Sports Plus Entertainment Center in Lake Grove, New York, in front of a reported crowd of 750 fans. This was uh, Ring of Honor's Long Island debut, I believe. Um, the Torch wrote... The walk-up for the Long Island event was strong, thanks in part to Mick Foley plucking it on a local radio show earlier that day. Uh, Mike Johnson would add, Ring of Honor was ecstatic with the turnout at their Lake Grove debut at a sports fest last night. I believe he meant Sports Plus, uh, which was said to have set a new record number for walk-up ticket buyers in company history. Some of that was credited to, Mick, to a Mick Foley radio appearance on Long Island Friday morning, where he put over Ring of Honor in a big way. There were a lot of fans there to see Foley. Now, that'll kind of tie into a couple other stories we're going to get to right now. First off, The Observer, and this is something that they do not show it on the DVD proper, but this would actually end up being probably the most noteworthy thing to have on the show. We'll go to The Observer. The biggest news from the show was the Kenta Kobashi announcement. At the uh, July 8th show in Lake Grove, New York, they announced it, and there was almost no reaction, unlike in the past when crowds went crazy over announcements of Great Muda and Jushin Liger, and both drew two of Ring of Honor's biggest crowds ever. The reaction was huge the next night in Manhattan for the same announcement. Uh, Dave continues, the Lake Grove show was said to be a disappointment as far as crowd heat, but the crowd of 750 fans was really strong, and it was attributed to doing a lot of angle stuff for casual fans who didn't know the storylines and and weren't internet fans, which explains the totally different uh, Kobashi reactions, because apparently, this is me adding, not Dave, from the live reports, the reaction when they announced Kobashi was coming in the next night in Manhattan was a lot bigger. I gotta um, say that the crowd reactions on the DVD, to me, do not match what he just described about that crowd. Um, I am glad you said that because I completely agree. Like, especially like they seem to be very knowledgeable about like the punk had just turned because they're booing them right away and stuff, like, which is something that would not have made DVD yet because it had just happened on the last show. And I don't know, like, did you ever get a match where it felt like the people, like the fans, did not know? who the wrestlers were or anything like that? No. Now, it's funny because, like, on future Long Island shows that I went to, um, you know, I've been – I went to a few shows there. Not not all of them, but I went to a few. And I did find that the crowd was not as into it as some other crowds. But, like, this one, um, they really seemed into it. And the other thing that makes it strange about the Kobashi nuts, but not saying it's not true, obviously. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But, you know, the fact that it was, a you know, a loud reaction – in Manhattan, but a quiet one in Long Island is that a lot of the fans are the same. <laughs> like, obviously <laughs> not most of them, but like, you got to figure a good, at least 20% of the crowd was at both shows. Um, and, you know, that would cause a reaction. And those are the ROH's biggest fans. So you'd think they would at least react, right? Yeah. Uh, so it, anyway, it, so it's weird. I don't know. And, and clearly the fans who did end up coming to those Kobashi shows were like, going out of their mind. So you would think the same fans that would go to those shows would probably attend earlier Ring of Honor shows, or at least some of them, and they'd be the kind of fans that they would also go out of their mind just hearing the announcement that he was coming to Ring of Honor. But Yeah, I mean, I can vouch for the fact that it was a very loud reaction to Manhattan the next night. <laughs> yeah. that, that is the only thing I can confirm about this. But yeah, no, on listen, if this was a dead crowd, then on DVD, that this, for whatever reason, the acoustics of this building was really flattering because it did not seem like that. And we've, we've reviewed shows that didn't have great 
great crowd reactions, and this is not. One I of would them. say this was a like slightly above average crowd, like it, yeah, it, not yeah. even average. I would say it's a decent. You know, they, they seem to know everything that's going on. They're and they're consistent, they're and they're consistently yeah. into the show. It's not like they're into one or two matches. There's like, you know, there's decent reactions for everything. And so finally, we set up the uh, the opening segment with another little clip from the Observer, where Dave would write that the gimmick for this show, the July eighth show in Lake Grove, where CM Punk makes his presumably final appearance, is that Punk will show up that night and hand pick his opponent to defend the title. So that was the big selling point, which was first show after the whole summer of Punk storyline kicked off. They didn't even announce, you know an opponent for punk and as you can see from dave's threading a lot of people like dave still thought that like it was going to be this was going to be the last show and again they would be fooled because clearly punk was going to do a few more shows but uh we open with cm punk making his way to the ring no backstage promos but everything has changed about his act because punk's hair is now jet black with purple highlights he's wearing a suit most importantly, though, Matt, he doesn't come out to uh, Miseria Cantare by AFI. He is usual theme music. He comes out for the very first time, I believe, in his wrestling career, Cult of Personality by Living Color. Uh, some people are cheering him. Others are chanting, fuck you, punk. Uh, punk verbally spars with a girl in the front row and says, you want me so bad. And she makes a great, disgusted, repulsed face at that. Um Punk gets in the ring. He grabs the mic. We get a dueling shut the fuck up CM Punk chant. So crowd is split at this point for him. Uh, Punk says people don't deserve an explanation for what he did on the last show, but he can't resist. And after all, what kind of evil genius would he be if he didn't tell you his master plan? He says his master plan, though, has already come to fruition. He says he has to tell another story about it to explain it. A year and a half ago, he was working for a company called Total Nonstop Action. And, of course, that immediately gets a fuck TNA chant. Um, Punk says he and some friends there were told that they could no longer work for ROH. He says he, Jerry Lynn, AJ Styles, and Christopher Daniels all decided to have a meeting late one Wednesday night in Nashville. He remarks that on that night in this meeting, AJ was AW, NWA champ at the time, a title that Punk says current means nothing compared to the one he himself currently holds. Punk then says that AJ could barely eat and couldn't look Punk in the eyes. Because they had all agreed at that moment that if they could all stuck together, they could work for Ring of Honor. They could work for wherever they wanted. Punk says he's faxed a part of his TNA contract to TNA's office with a part of it highlighted. And that part was the part that said he could res- wrestle for whoever he wanted as long as their name wasn't Vince McMahon and they weren't running a pay-per-view. Punk says he told AJ that he was the champ, so he had all the power. TNA would have to listen to him on stuff like this. Punk says everyone at this meeting they had looked at him in the eyes and said, we're with you, Punk. We're all going to stick together. And Punk says that was the moment that he knew was the nail in his coffin. He stuck with Ring of Honor, and he says there wouldn't be a Ring of Honor for AJ Styles or Christopher Daniels to come back to now without him. This actually draws applause from the crowd. This is a you know a face moment for the crowd. And um, Punk asks the crowd who they think built this country. I mean the company, not the country. The crowd chants Joe. Punk gets angry. He says, was Joe the one training the kids? Was Joe the one eating and sleeping Ring of Honor like he was? Daniel, Styles, and even Low Key turned their backs on Ring of Honor while he stayed, and he got shit on for his troubles. Punk says the fans didn't appreciate him. They were always saying things like, when's AJ coming back? Low Key throws nice kicks, or Christopher Daniels is so great. 
Punk says he compares himself to Atlas with everything being on his shoulders. He built the young guys. He showed them the way. He gave the loser fans here a place to come every Friday and Saturday night. He says the fans turned their backs on him. They said he wasn't qualified to run the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. They said he was sloppy. Punk says he was the backbone of this company, and now he's the most important champion in the entire world. At this point, Punk brings up that he got an offer from WWE. This does get some booze from the crowd. Uh, Punk says the fans started chanting, please don't go, once the word got out that he had this offer. Punk says he wants to hear this, this chant now from the fans, but instead the fans now just chant, you sold out again. Uh, Punk says fans doubted he signed a contract. They doubted his talent when he's the greatest wrestler walking the world today. But he says the fans are right. He hasn't signed a contract. Yet. He then proceeds to pull out what look, appears to be a WWE contract out of his suit. He shows it off to the crowd, and you can't see there's – it's like a one-sheet page with a WWE logo on it. Punk calls it it's – his, it's his key to freedom, a way to not have to see these fans anymore. He wants Bobby Cruz to hold the Ring of Honor world title so that he can sign the WWE contract on it. Cruz says there's no way in hell he's going to disrespect Ring of Honor like that. Punk says that's fine. Have fun on the indies. He moves on to uh, referee Todd Sinclair, who's also in the ring at this moment. He wants Todd to hold the belt. Sinclair also refuses. Punk says he figures these two might grow a spine tonight. So he calls in his student, Shane Hagedorn, from ringside to hold the belt. Shane does this gleefully. He's got a big shitting grin on his face. He holds the belt for Punk. Punk signs the contract on the belt. He says he has to get the contract notarized. He asks if anyone in the crowd is a notary republic, which kind of made me laugh. Um, Punk signs the deal. The crowd chants, na 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 na, hey, 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 goodbye. And when he's done, James Gibson appears at the entranceway. He's taping up his fists. He runs to the ring. He hits Shane Hagedorn with the Gibson driver as Punk flees to ringside. Uh, Gibson screams at Punk as the crowd chants, Jamie. Punk laughs and backs away when Christopher Daniels walks up behind him and attacks him. Punk at this point runs back into the ring trying to get away from Daniels. Both Daniels and Punk chase him. They get they get in a couple brief licks in the ring, but then Punk again flees back into the crowd. So this was like, I don't know, like a 12 to 15 minute opening segment. And I was going to say, that's got to be the longest promo you've ever transcribed, and you did a really great detailed job on it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was long, and... Um, you know, Ring of Honor. They this wasn't something they had never done before, but this was a very rare thing to do. Like I don't think they had ever, I don't think they ever done it quite to this like length. You know, I think this yeah. has got to be the longest opening promo by far ever in ROH history at this point. Yeah, like a Raw style main eventer comes out, sets up the entire night. You know, does a long promo explaining things. The one but, thing he didn't um, do. The one thing he didn't do, though, you said sets up the entire night. Was it ever mentioned that he was going to defend the title and he was going to announce later who it was? Like the the commentators mentioned it, and it was mentioned, you know, like in the hype promotion for this show. But did he ever say it in his promo? No, it's not. I guess yeah. maybe you're supposed to assume it with uh, Todd Sinclair being in the ring with Bobby Cruz. Like maybe well, the crowd, the crowd supposedly are supposed to already know it based on you know the promotion of for the show. But yeah, it's yeah. weird. I think I think he just kind of forgets to say that. But, uh, I mean, obviously we just saw probably one of the two most famous punk promos in Ring of Honor history, the, the show previous, and along with the, uh, the famous Straight Edge, uh, one on Raven. But this promo, I feel like the promo isn't remembered as much, but everyone remembers just the visual of punk signing the, uh, the contract on the, on the title belt. But what do you think about the promo itself here? Um, well, I think punk's mic work on this show, um, and, um, that includes the stuff he does later is comparably good to what he did at the last show, at the Death Before Dishonor show. And actually, 
might be the best I've ever seen. Like, and like, he's obviously one of the great promos of the this generation. You know, maybe the the greatest promo probably in the U.S. of this generation. And um, this, he was as good on this show, in my opinion, as he'd ever been. I thought he was fantastic. Um, I thought, you know, I thought this was like I, I wrote this was like a, a raw opening promo back when raw was like good a lot of the time, and you were sort of like <laughs> looking forward to raw opening promos, which. Believe it or not, that was briefly true. Um, didn't last. We were super talking long. about being old earlier. Nothing dates us more than us remembering when raw opening promos were good. No, but like seriously, people are like, oh, I didn't know these guys were fifty. Yeah, no, but like seriously though, like there was a, there was there was an era where we would, as wrestling fans, be really excited to see the week-to-week updates of storylines. Like, you know, like it was yeah. that episodic. And when the Raw opening promo started, we'd be like, yeah, what's going to happen now? We're so excited to watch it. Like, that's legitimately true. And actually, this CM Punk angle, to me, is one of the few times in my entire life as a wrestling fan that I could remember being a, a, an angle being so episodically compelling. Like, I want to see what happens next. I mean, if you really think about it, how many times in your entire like viewing of pro wrestling week to week or show to show has there ever really been an angle where you were like re- not just like you wanted to watch because you liked the characters and the performers and stuff like that, but like you really wanted to see what was going to happen next in terms of like story development uh, a few times in a row? I can't think of too many. Like the NWO early on, you know, uh, Austin versus McMahon early on, uh, Austin versus the Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation thing early on. Um, some of this, and then this this CM Punk angle, and of course also the CM Punk stuff that happened, um, you know, in WWE years later. But like, it's in pretty elite territory as far as being like episodically compelling, um, in my opinion. Um, as you know, and I and I really thought Punk did a great job, and I also thought that Shane Hagedorn, for his part, did a great job. Like when when um, when Punk calls on Shane to uh, hold the belt. Shane is super gleeful to do it, and he, he off mic. He goes, "I get to do the honors," and does like a yes fist pump, and then <laughs> and as he's wearing a CM Punk T-shirt, yeah, just to seal the deal, being such a you know a little suck up, it's yeah. so great. And as Punk is signing the contract, um, Hagedorn says, "Proudest moment of my life," like just like <laughs> like all those great little touches. And again, those are off mic. Um, also, when they. When they chant the na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye at Punk, Justin Shapiro, if you're listening, and I know you're not, you did ask if they would do this if Prince Nana had to leave. Well, I think this is a good indication that they would. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, I thought it, I thought it was great. Like I really really did. Yeah, um, I completely agree about like I was thinking this. I'm wondering like I would obviously have to rewatch a lot of stuff to know this, but I kind of feel like. You know, CM Punk was never a guy, like, uh, for whatever fault some people have about CM Punk in or out of the ring, one of those things that was not, no one could fault him for was not being confident in himself or, or exuding confidence. But I think on this show, I don't think there was another show in, in I've ever seen CM Punk where he is both this confident and also I think I've rarely seen a wrestler th- – then CM Punk on the show, like, exude more just like that he's having the time of his life. 
Like the whole show in his match on these promos, he just seems like so happy and so gleeful. And, you know, I'm sure part of that's the heel persona, but it just seems like he's getting to do exactly what he wants. Probably something he's thought about for weeks or months. And he's doing the exact role he wants. You know, he's on the top of the company. The attention's on him. And he just, he feels like he's got the crown in the palm of his hand. And like during the match later, during these promos, I've rarely, I, I don't think I've ever seen CM Punk like this happy, I think ever. And you know, he's gotten to do other things that were really cool, but I, I can't remember another time I think he's ever been this happy. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that comes across to the viewer. I apologize for background noise, by the way. There is a really bad rainstorm happening right outside my house right now. Um, but, uh, it will pass. I apologize for that. Um, can't do anything about that one but um i um as but yeah as far as uh as far as punk yeah he he loves it and it and it rubs off on uh on the viewer like i you know it it just makes it makes everything he does that much more impactful the one thing i will say though his suit was not very well fitted um now i (laughs) i you know when, when you see him wearing suits and stuff like that like in um in uh, future, like WWE Hall of Fame stuff like that, he he's much better, uh, much better fitting suit. So I wonder if that was like a a product of just that's how people wore suits in 2005, or if it was just a badly fitting suit. <laughs> well, this might give some clues because. As I often do, after I review, watch the show, and write up all my own notes, I'll listen, to, if I have the time, to the uh, an honorable mention podcast episode on the show. I always do it after I do all my notes because I don't want to – I have a very soft, jelly-like, easily influenceable brain, Matt, so I have to do it after I've formed all my opinions. But I did have the time to listen to it on this one, and one of the things they mention – is that uh, I believe Shane Hagedorn reveals that someone actually had to put on CM Punk's tie for him backstage because CM Punk had never put on a tie before and didn't know how. So that probably tells you that, like, Punk, this was probably, like, a hastily thrown together, like, baby's first suit situation for CM Punk, probably, if he didn't even know how to tie a tie. That's a, fa- that's a fair point. You're right. Um, yeah. That, that's good to know. I did not I did not know that. Um, So I would say about the promo itself, in some ways, I actually like this promo even better than the promo on the last show. I think it's funny because, you know, for those who didn't listen to the last show, and that'd be weird if you didn't listen to the last show if you're listening to this one, but just in case you didn't. Fucking weirdos. You know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Weird. I love all the deep vein thrombozos. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I uh, really like that promo, and obviously it's it's a legendary promo, the, the heel turn punk promo on the last show. But I did have a couple complaints, and my one biggest complaint was – it felt like – it didn't feel like a personal promo and Punk usually and most good promos kind of feel like there's some bit of conviction. It felt very much like an evil supervillain promo and you correctly I think pointed out to me you know, that was kind of the point was Punk was doing a more over-the-top heel villain that he had never done before. And I think you know he really confirms that for you here where he actually literally says like I wouldn't be an evil genius if I didn't explain my plan to you. So he's very aware he's playing like the movie Bond villain. I'm going to tell you what I've done to you now yeah. promo. But the thing I liked about this promo is almost like he answered my criticism of that last one because he still does the evil genius thing. But that whole middle part of the promo, it does really feel like – like I, I have no idea if that's true or not, if he's exaggerating things, but that whole middle part where he talks about, you know, we had this conversation in TNA and, you know, we were all going to stick together and work to stay in both Ring of Honor and TNA during the scandal and you guys all, you know, abandoned me and I was the only one that stuck to my convictions. Like that all – like when he's cutting that promo, it sounds very real and I think it's interesting like when you listen – watch this promo – 
it's again like the last show he very easily could have gotten even more of a heel reaction if he had just done the classic simple thing of sucking up and going oh i love triple h i can't wait to work for triple h i you know all this stuff and in this promo his his whole way to get to the kind of the heel reaction is not like i'm selling out even though he is getting those kind of chance in the crowd it's it's the fact of you didn't appreciate me enough you know all these other wrestlers that you're cheering as much or more that for than me you know they left the company behind i didn't you know why don't you appreciate me like them it's a, it's an interesting angle he took to kind of get to it and so i really like that but then it also brings up a criticism which is i think you watch this this whole run punk is clearly wanting to be like a heel ass heel he wants to be super duper heel but this problem in the middle and there's a moment or two even with from the crowd on the show even though most of the show like they're booing him but like that impact stuff in the middle you're kind of like that's a face promo in the middle you're like hey yeah he actually did stick around like you know, it sounds true and, you know, to a Ring of Honor fan, you should admire him for that. And even like at the end where he's signing with WWE and he's still calling the Ring of Honor title the most important wrestling title in the world. Like he was still kind of doing things that were kind of face face that, you know, that's my one quibble with this promo is just but, that. Okay, so let, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you really think it would have been better if he didn't do that though? Oh, uh, well, no, because I think it would have lost the uh, – Again, the part of the promo that I also think was a strength, which is that he had such conviction and was doing something that felt real and based on history. Right. No. But it is interesting that, you know, it's a heel guy, character, but what he's saying really does ring true and don't, seems don't like most an admirable best, don't, thing. Don't, don't most of the best heel characters have an element of that, though? In a way, but in this one, uh, I don't know. I just, in the middle of the promo, I almost felt like it was hard. Like, if I had been there live at the time, I wouldn't have wanted to boo him at that point because it's like – you're kind of making me feel sorry for you when you're like, yeah, you did stick around. You did lose bookings in TNA. If what you're saying is true, that these other guys kind of implied they would stick together with you and then kind of just left you on your own. And you're the only one that really faced them the repercussions. Like, you know, that, that doesn't engender sympathy at a time when he's literally calling himself like an evil genius and wanting to be like the big heel. Yeah. I guess just, uh, I just, I guess I just disagree as far as like what it takes to be the great heel. Like I think the best heels like do all, like most of them do have an element of that. Like they're not just pure, like loathsome every, like, you know, you, there's depth to the, some of the best heels and that makes you hate them more. You know, the fact like, fuck, you're right, but I hate you for it, you know? Um, and I think, you know, punk, does a good I, I really think that he just plays this whole thing perfectly i guess that's kind of like what i'm trying to say like i i really admire this the way he does this so so much um that i think every little nuance to it including what you're saying actually adds to the presentation and i'm not sure if every single show will be equally as perfect in my eyes but at least for this show i thought he played everything perfectly and I just – one other thing I want to go to, I wanted to respond to because I thought you made a really great point about like how many times in wrestling have we been like tuning into a show to see like how a storyline progresses to be on like the edge of our seat for that. And I think it's pretty wild when you think about – this is probably one of the only times in Ring of Honor history where they felt confident enough in a storyline where think about like they sold the show where they were just like, we're not going to tell you what the world title match is going to be. Like in storyline, we don't know. And they still, you know, they drew a good crowd, obviously. Yeah, way above average crowd, yeah. 
they're attributing out some of that maybe to McFoley and a big walk up, but still it's like they felt, you know, so confident in this story that for this weekend they were like, we're not even going to announce matches for Punk. In fact, they were trying to make people think that he might not even be on the Manhattan show the next night. It's funny and, because, you know, sorry. Oh no, you go on, go on. This is, this is to me the only weekend of this entire angle and maybe the, the, the one in Connecticut too, but it really feels like this is the only weekend in the entire angle where the people who went to these shows really thought that this was probably Punk's last show or last weekend on both nights. Because um, I think after this, people sort of kind of looked at the calendar and were like, uh, probably going to Chicago. You know, like they were setting up yeah. sto- with, with Daniels, with, um, with Joe, with Gibson, you know, even with Cabana a little bit. Um, so there was. Um, like, but I think on these two shows, you know, it was easy to forget. A lot of us, you know, I don't remember what I thought, but a lot of people believed, like, oh, Punk is going to lose the title on this show or the next night, you know? Like, yeah. I, and so that changes the dynamic a bit, too, um, in a really interesting way. And I think it really enhances the main event, in a, you know, in a, in a way that maybe it wouldn't have it, if that match had been booked another way. Absolutely agree. And the one last note I have on this is uh, a little discrepancy. Um, when I was listening to the An Honorable Mention podcast, they mentioned that uh, that the WWE contract uh, Punk signed was legit, apparently, that Punk had just gotten it in the mail recently, and it was kind of like this bit of kismet, like, oh, hey, I, I'll have this prop I can actually use in this promo. But Mike Johnson, recapping the show for PW Insider, wrote, Punk then whipped out what was supposedly his WWE deal and signed it atop the Ring of Honor title belt. In actuality, Punk returned his WWE paperwork last week. So some discrepancy there. For all I know, both stories could be real because maybe, you know, like I imagine if you're signing with WWE, you probably have to sign more than one sheet of paper. So I imagine there could have been multiple things he had to sign. He had one he signed here that was legit and then some other legit paperwork. And either way, it doesn't really matter. It's a, it's, it was a memorable visual no matter what, either way. But Yeah, great moment. Yeah. So that brings us to the opening match on the show. Dixie and Jay Lethal defeated the debuting Heartbreak Express of Phil Davis and Sean Davis in three minutes, five seconds, when Lethal pinned uh, Phil Davis after he hit the Dragon Suplex. Uh, Matt, I don't know if this match was edited for length or if it was naturally just went three minutes or five seconds, but there was definitely an edit that happened within the match. Um, so what did you think about the match and everything that went on? I guess you can explain what happened. Okay. I mean, what I think about the match is that I, I think nothing about the match. But <laughs> as far – I mean it, was, it wasn't anything. Like, you know, it was, it was there as a red herring I guess for Jay Lethal maybe. Like, yeah. Uh, but um, the, uh, as far as the angle, yeah. So basically um, very shortly into the match, um, like very shortly, like seconds in, there's a um, – there's a blur – and then the screen goes to like color bars and quote unquote the feed goes out. You know, the DVD feed. I don't know. But um, <laughs> it uh, – and they, they – it cuts and like it does that a few times and then it cuts to a shot of what are very obviously Matt Hardy's eyes. Um, you know, un- unmistakably Matt Hardy's eyes. And um, the announcers eventually because it comes right back, the announcers are confused but they don't acknowledge what we just saw. And then the match ends. Uh, Lethal hits a dragon suplex on Phil Davis, wins the match. Um, Bye-bye, Heartbreak Express. Uh, Nice seeing you. Um, But, um, yeah, uh, I 
I didn't totally understand why this had to be this way. It seems weird to me. Uh, doesn't really. I mean, I don't. What about Matt Hardy's character involves him um, cutting into uh, live broadcast feeds? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't really understand it. But uh, I guess it was a way to. Uh, seamlessly edit a match without it being too obvious so <laughs> i guess i get, that might have been the whole idea <laughs> like that might have been the whole reason they did it this way in fact i'm guessing it was because they do it again later for another match that is clearly shorter than it actually was so for those who don't know the heartbreak express they were like an fip mainstay tag team and it, it, to explain their gimmick it's basically imagine if it's a heel act imagine like a big overweight guy and like a, a, another skinnier schlubby looking guy and they're dressed in like pink and purple and they're acting like they're both two rick rude like heartthrobs and um you know they were kind of like a regular acting fip and you know they obviously got a little bit of work here in ring of honor but people thought you know maybe they just the ring of honor crowd wouldn't accept an act that was kind of bigger on gimmick and more old style were they I'll ever on this, another were they ever on another main show for roh uh, i'm not sure. I would presume they're going to be on the next show, won't they? Because or nope. will they? Nope. Definitely oh. not. Huh. Well. Huh. But I, I'll, I'll say this about the Heartbreak Express in this match. Even though you only see three minutes, I felt like they did a few cool spots in this match. Uh, like I might be out on a limb here, but like there's a moment where um, one member of the Heartbreak Express, I mean, Lethal has uh, Sean Davis in a headlock, and then Phil Davis charges, and both Jay and Sean duck at the same time and do like a back body drop on him while the headlock is still being held on. Um, I thought there was like a cool sit-out Mishinoku driver by Sean Davis, and there was a cool spot where Phil Davis lifts a guy up for the back for like a back suplex, and then Sean Davis does like who's the big member of the two. He does like a big uh, combination like clothesline off the second rope at the same time, and I, I thought there, those were like three cool spots for an act that was always described as like oh you know. They're, they're a throwback, you know, they don't do, like, cool stuff. Well, those were cool spots. And, again, I have no idea what this match, if it was edited in full, was like or anything like that. But I actually thought those were some cool spots. And the one other note I have from this, too, was uh, I guess we should just mention Prezak. This is on commentary mentions multiple times on this night. This idea that Punk's backstage promo was so long and unscheduled that all the backstage promos for the show have been canceled. So this was something, a way of Ring of Honor, you know, another difference from the show from most Ring of Honor shows, which are usually bookended by backstage promos and often have some in the middle at intermission. This was a show where they didn't have those backstage promos and they kept blame, trying to blame it on Punk. He took up so much time, all the promos were canceled. So that was an interesting way to kind of explain what had happened on the, uh, the show, but Matt, that brings us to the next match on the show, which I think you should also get first crack at since that last match was basically nothing. Roderick Strong defeated Azrael via submission in 11 minutes, 28 seconds when he made Azrael tap out to the stronghold. Um, they're really, you know, this is that, this is when they were really trying to get Azrael over to basically probably the level that, uh, Roderick Strong was at at this point, kind of the up and comer and the upper mid card, mid card to upper mid card now. And it got a decent amount of time. So, what did you think about the match? Yeah, I, I, I know that's sort of the uh, the wisdom is that like they were trying to get Azriel over to that level. I don't see it though. Like, I don't see them what they're doing anything to do that. Like, he still feels like a jobber to the stars here to me. Um, 
Like very early on, um, Prezak says that Azrael is rocketing up the roster. But <laughs> didn't he win like one match and it was a six-man scramble? And he and Dixie basically lost the special K feud to Lacey's Angels. Yeah, they lost the feud. They, they like he. I don't think he's being presented as anything special. Not that. Not not nothing about. I don't mean that anything about like his performance. I'm talking about just like the way they're actually presenting him. I, I, we, we pretty clearly watched how they ended up getting Roderick yeah. into this level. They're not doing that with Azrael. Um, uh, now, as far as this match, I, I did like it. Like for a lot of the way, like I thought that it looked like Roderick always looks good, and I thought he continued to look good. He was really playing to the crowd here, trying to get him, get them to cheer him. You know, Azrael is obviously not a heel, but you know, Roddy was definitely like the one who was trying to get the crowd on his side more. And it worked. You know, the crowd really loves loved Roderick Strong um, and by this point. And, you know, good timing for that, given what comes the next night. You know, there were, like, you know, there were a lot of cool spots. Um, like, at one point, um, uh, Azriel he goes for, like, a flipping springboard something, but Roderick catches him and hits him with a backbreaker. Like, I thought that was a great spot uh, that he got a two that I got a two count on. Um, there was another spike. Like Azriel does his uh, his double stomps while while uh, Roddy is straddling the ropes. Not low key level, but still good. Um, you know, I thought it was pretty good. I thought that the last few minutes kind of fell apart a little bit. It happens after Azriel goes for a blockbuster, but he botches it pretty badly. Roderick still sells it. And then I think after that, it seems like um, Azrael sort of gets off his game to me. That's what it looked like. Like when he does his kick flurry, like the, you know, he does his kicks to the back and mm-hmm. then to the front. I thought he just didn't have the pop that he usually has on them. Like it just felt to me like he just he just didn't feel like right. Like I don't know. I feel like when Azrael gets off his game, he really gets off his game. Like I and, and I and I you know I think he could be really good. But I, I do think it, se- it seems like he got easily – he got flustered here, and it, it kind of made the end of the match not work so well for me. But I really thought Roderick looked great. I think he always does, like I said. And I thought it was going along pretty well. I was enjoying it until that last part. Yeah, I, I thought – I, I think that's a really interesting point because I was, when I was writing my notes as I was watching this match, I was you know fairly deep in it, and I was like, oh, you know, one of the stories I think coming out of this match is, you know, Azrael's fundamentals are really, really pretty solid now compared to where they once were. Because for those who haven't been with us for the entire run of through the years, like in the early days of Azrael when he was Angel Dust and Special K, like it's felt like almost every match he would do like one bad botch in addition to all his um really cool stuff. And it, to the point where it kind of became a joke on commentary for a while, like, oh, Angel Dust is high again, you know, there he goes. And I was thinking, oh, you know, this is a match where, like, maybe he's not quite doing every exciting thing he did in the Special K spot fest, but he's more fundamentally there. And then he does that blockbuster botch you mentioned where he clearly, like, just misjudges or overshoots or something where Roddy's neck is going to be and he basically barely touches his arm and doesn't get, you know, anything around his head. And... Yeah, like you said, at that point, it feels like he kind of loses his confidence, and it's like a classic angel dust botch from him. Um, as for the match itself, I probably liked it a little bit less than you, but I still, I think I liked it right around what you liked. I, I would say this is like a high above average, like bordering on good, like decent, fun mid-card match. I, I felt like it was almost, I kind of remind me 
as a lesser version of the Jimmy Rave Matt Seidel match we watched a while ago where I had the same vibe in that that was what I felt like to us one of the first matches where Jimmy Rave is now established enough where he's going to kind of lead a less established or less push guy through a match and really controlling it and looking good as like kind of a leading a match. I felt Roderick Strong, this was like one of those early examples where he's clearly, you know, the vet and the more push guy and he was really – Looking, like you said, he looked great, I thought, in this match. He was re- doing all sorts of cool variations on the backbreaker. You mentioned some of them. There was one where um, uh, Azrael was on like sitting on the top turnbuckle, and Roddy just grabs one of his legs and pulls him by the leg off the turnbuckle, and he just falls into a backbreaker, which looked really cool. There was also a big spot where Azrael does a big dive into, the, uh, into Roddy on the floor, and Roddy really makes sure to catch him and it looks like he like legit hurt his shoulder because it wasn't part of the story in the match but like he immediately grabs his shoulder and he keeps grabbing it for the rest of the match and it you know it's never worked on it It, I kind of maybe it was just him doing a great job selling I felt it looked like he really you know really hurt his shoulder there um but over yeah it was a a decent a, a good, decent match. I keep saying good and decent. I, that's Sean kind of in it between was kind the of, two. It was kind of a decent match. A decent match, yes. yes. The, the, the flying south for the winter. But um, the, the the thing about this match, though, I felt like I kind of miss – and I keep getting this with, the, with this and maybe the other Special K guys. Even though in some ways I feel like their fundamentals are better – I'm kind of missing the old crazy spot fest special K, even though I admit that gimmick had run its course. They're now, I think it's maybe they just, especially in the case of Azrael, he doesn't have like a lot, like they've taken away stuff. I've mentioned this before. You can't take away something from someone and not give them something back. And when you think about Azrael right now, like what does he have? He doesn't have a storyline or a feud. He doesn't have a manager. He doesn't really have a gimmick. He's just Azrael, the guy who wrestles fairly good. You know, he doesn't have a unique look. He, do, he doesn't, like, really have anything. And when you compare should, it to a guy should, like they Rod... Should have, they should have literally just did that. Like, this is Azriel, the guy who wrestles fairly good. <laughs> that, that, that would have gotten over, I think. But it's it's weird because, like, even comparing to Roderick Strong, Roderick Strong, you know, was put in a in a stable, like a cool stable, and had guys that could he could bounce off of and who could talk for him and things like that. You know, Asriel doesn't really have anything at this point. I feel like that's probably one of the things that hurts him when, like, you were talking earlier, where they keep acting like he's this big, like this big up and coming star. Like they're saying in this match, oh, he's where Roderick Strong was a year ago. Um. But yeah, Roddick Strong had stuff to do and people to work with, and Azrael's just getting thrown out there. And like you said, he's not even really winning. He's not so, winning. I mean, he, he won that yeah. one. He won that one scramble match, and remember they cut away like immediately. You didn't even get to like process it. So yeah, this, the idea that he's like really on fire. I mean, well, they're doing a terrible job um, presenting that, and that's why I don't really buy that they ever actually really tried with him. I'm not saying they should have. Like I'm, I, you know, I. I, you know, I've only really watched Azrael in ROH, um, so I, you know, you don't really get to see all of his upside potential there. But they aren't like I like. It's weird that people think that they were like giving Azrael a push because they weren't. <laughs> you know, they were just putting him in more singles matches. Well, we'll get to later another guy who they uh, talked about on commentary as if he was a big rising star, but the booking of him was completely different than that. But 
first, I guess we should mention, after the match, Alex Shelley, another guy who was completely, I think, unannounced for the show, runs in. He lays out Roderick Strong with the shell shock. He gets a very nice, loud chant of his name for the surprise appearance. And this was a show, again, we've talked about this in the past. I felt like Alex Shelley was surprisingly over as a babyface. And this is kind of weird knowing that he's on the precipice of a big heel turn. And I, and I do feel like even though I did like Alex Shelley in the embassy and I even like kind of the justification for his heel turn, I, um, you know, I do think they, there was there, they left something on the table here by not really giving Alex Shelley a babyface run after being booted from generation next. Yeah. I remember being pretty disappointed when he turned heel because like I was getting into him as a babyface, Um, and I think part of it, might have been um, Shelley at this point wasn't on every show, yeah, and so maybe they didn't want to go with him as a big baby face because he wasn't going to be as consistently there as some other guys. Um, that was sort of my uh, my take. Uh, you know, even once he joined the embassy, like there were a number of shows that he missed during that time. Yeah. And, well, even here, his his uh, disappearance was because he was supposed to go, on, I think, on a tour of either Europe or Japan, and then that got canceled, but they had already decided not to book him for a couple shows to sell an injury anyway, and then he shows up here and, as a surprise, and then is just put into a four-way on the next night. Like, you know, he was kind of adrift in the booking until the embassy, but he still was getting these really good babyface reactions, but... Uh, that brings us to the Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Match. B.J. Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs, the champions, successfully defended the titles when they defeated Lacey's Angels of Cheached and Deranged with uh, in uh, 11 minutes, 21 seconds, when Deranged – I mean Jacobs pinned Deranged after the Doomsday Rana. Um, I thought this match was decent, but – Nothing that special. It was kind of middle of the road average to me. Um, it, it followed the very simple classic tag formula where the faces dominate early. Jacobs eventually gets, you know, cut off. He's placed the face in peril, which he, you know, he's natural to do because of his size. Um, then we get the hot tag into the final few minutes where everyone comes in and do, do, does the bigger spots. The heels cheat when they have control and. You know, in that sense, it's a, you know, there's a reason formulas are there in wrestling for a reason. It's the good, simple tag formula. But because so many matches do it, I felt like there's also a lot of matches to compare this to. And, you know, this was just an average version of that formula. And I think, you know, again, much like Asriel, like Deranged and um, Cheech in this match, they're, they're doing, you know, very good standard heel work where, you know, choking on the ropes, having their entourage you know, of Cloudy and Lacey interfere when the ref isn't looking. You know, simple heel stuff. They're being very cocky where Deranged pulls the old, uh, teases that, you know, he runs the ropes for a million years and then he, the move he finally does is put a guy into a chin lock and Cheech kind of does something similar where he sets up like he's going to do a big move and it's just putting a foot on a guy's chest for a pinfall. So classic heel stuff, but I still miss. Like, I feel like the trade isn't good because they're kind of doing standard heel stuff. And in return, they've kind of pared back a lot of their just crazy special K high flying. There's still some of it. They do like the springboard doomsday ace crusher and stuff like that. But I feel like, again, they've kind of lost something and what they've gained back isn't quite as much. But uh, it was still a perfectly fine match. I think it was also probably hurt by the fact that I don't think there's a soul alive that believed that, you know, um, uh, deranged and Cheech had a chance of winning this match, which would play into the booking of the tag champs the next night. Gabe would kind of respond to that kind of vibe that was starting to come up 
But uh, what did you think, Matt? Yeah, it's um, as far as I'm not having a chance. I mean, I imagine that Cheech wasn't the original person that was supposed to be in this match because you know it was Izzy and Derange that won the match against yeah. uh, Generation Next, and you know Izzy isn't on either night. I, I don't even know if he's if he's ever in ROH again. It's only like one or two more times. Um, Izzy, um, I guess that's kind of true for deranged also now that i think about it um but um yeah i I, it's another match where i probably liked it very slightly more than you um you know i thought the ending sequence was fun i think that jacobs and whitmer you know have good double team moves and they they do a good job and i think that makes the the match good um but i i do actually agree with you about the lacy's angels team that yeah they're their offense is very basic when they're on when they're you know in control, and you want a little bit more than that from uh, guys who can do so much more athletically. Um, yeah. Even as heels, now it's funny because clearly, clearly they they have it in their mind that like they really are just going to be heels and work the crowd, and they work the crowd a lot. And I actually think it's one of the rare cases where these heels are just working the crowd a little too much. Sometimes <laughs> I'm like, all right, you know, you can lay off the, the, you know, you don't have to do, you don't have to like do crowd work between every single move that you do, you know, and that's kind of what they were doing for a while. Like it wasn't, none of it was bad, but it was just like, all right, do some wrestling <laughs> right now. Um, I appreciate <laughs> what they were, what they were um, going for. I just don't didn't necessarily think that, you know, I think they were kind of learning the balance, I guess. Um, you know, like Cheech, like he even tried to pin Jacobs with one foot at one point. It's like yeah. Cheech doing that, like to a to one of the uh, tag team champions. Like that's funny, but it's not really uh, something that gets you invested in a tag team title match. Um, that said, the crowd was into it. It's not like they found it boring or anything. They got a they gave a big pop for that running the ropes chin lock thing. Um, yeah, you know, and and you know they were they were trying really hard. Um, so I, so I ended up enjoying it, but I thought. I don't know. I thought that the middle part was just a little bit too basic and slow for what this match could have been. Um, some other stuff, though. Um, for one point, a Whitmer calls them Hillbilly Jesus, which I don't know if I remember that that uh, that name, but I don't think I like it. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't actually go with that. Um, also, another thing is uh, at the beginning when they're talking about Lacey and um, like her, quote, anger issues and hatred of men – Gabe has to throw in a comment like, well, she is pretty hot, though. And it's like, you know, Gabe, what would we have thought if you hadn't said that? What would we have thought about <laughs> you if you hadn't mentioned that uh, that you that she was hot? You didn't get that, that, that thrown right in there. And it's funny because Prezak mostly just ignores it whenever Gabe drools over her. Um, <laughs> and just and just like changes the subject to her, quote, questionable tactics. Um, so, so, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're pretty much at the end of the era of the announcers. Um, drooling over the women on the show but you know i feel like this was like one of the last hurrahs for it so i wanted to to note it because we have sure we have sure had to experience that for years all the way back to um steve carino having an orgasm on commentary over simply luscious um back in 2002 um so like you know pour one out for uh announcers perving on the women of ring of honor um but um, the other thing is, um, um, Cheech when he was when he was uh, in control, he would do the "I have till five referee thing, and I was like, well, you know, if Brian Danielson's not around, might as well let Cheech do it. <laughs> the original American Dragon, <laughs> yes. Cheech. 
Um, I, I had a few other little notes on the match. Uh, first off, but. Uh, first off, I do think it's amazing. I kind of agree with you. There was almost too much crowd work. It's amazing when that it's you saying that though, because or both of us, because we're like about as big a uh, deranged fans as, as as there are, at least when it comes to Ring of Honor. I think, and yeah, yeah. he's probably one of the best guys on the indies when it comes to crowd work. So when we're like uh, maybe a little too much, that that that's saying something. I think, but um. I thought it was funny. Before the match, a female fan has got some kind of paper she's showing Lacey. I have no idea what's on it, but Lacey grabs it and she just angrily tosses it. I think, it was, I think it was. I think it was money. Like I think it was like sort of like treating her like 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 because I think like a, yeah I think I've seen that on other shows too. Yeah, they, they were she was like she was like handing her dollar bills and stuff, and she was like, "Get that oh. away from me." So she's like backseat boy in it. And anyway, deranged then grabs it and he sticks it in his mouth, but then he kind of chews on, and then he eventually spits out in a moment that felt kind of like. Real, like he realized, oh God, like I, I've stuck this money, I guess, in my <laughs> mouth, and this is this is highly unhygienic and probably not a taste sensation. Um, is that more or less gross than kiss, kissing the ROH canvas? Uh, they're close to even. Maybe if it was Canadian, I just I think I read a story recently where they said Canadian money is like the dirtiest money apparently in the world, or among them for some reason. So that's, that's a weird. Canadian dollar. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why. I don't know if that means drug particulates. I don't know if that just means bacteria. I know we got we in the recent years we've switched that newfangled plastic money. Maybe that has something to do with it. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, um, I also mentioned Jacobs came out in the oversized oversized matching hoodie with BJ again, and he's re- they're really back to trying to sell him as more of a comedy guy in the odd couple team. Like because they even did this thing early on where deranged flexed to start the match and like. Jimmy stumbles backwards out of fear out of deranges muscles like like again he's really total comedy here they do a spot later in the match which is actually a really cool spot where BJ just like grabs Jimmy and swings him around like a, a weapon and then when he's done he just tosses him like hard to the mat like he's a sack of garbage which again they're kind of bringing you know big guy little guy dynamic there was also a couple of weird, ugly spots in this match. There was one where uh, BJ tosses Cheech straight in the air, and it looks like Jacobs was supposed to just, like spear him out in midair from that spot, but instead he just kind of is able to like spear his leg, and Cheech kind of falls awkwardly on top of Jacobs from that. And then there was also what I would describe as the world's slowest reverse Rana by deranged on BJ Whitmer. It was like the slowest one I think you could do while still kind of convincingly like doing the move and not completely exposing things. But again, average match moving on. Um, we then get clips of Jimmy Rave's entrance for tonight as a Jimmy, as a, as a gay voiceover tells us they're only showing us a clip because Prince Nana's treatment of Jay Chung was so despicable and abusive that they can't show it on ring of honor video. Gabe then says that the outcast killers quit the embassy because of her treatment and offered for Chung to leave with them. But she said, no, And at this point it's weird that he did a voiceover recapping that because when the voiceover then cuts out, we then clearly get the last half of the angle he just described because um, we, we're coming in right after the outcast killer mic work. It's clear. And Nana's telling Jay, if she leaves with the outcast killers, she's through. She'll be back to eating canned tuna. Jay just puts her head down and she walks behind Nana. And I guess we should mention, Matt, that I think apart from like a match on a do or die in the next month or so, this is it, I think, for the outcast killers in Ring of Honor. So a, a not very glorious end to their run where basically their gimmick is basically saying like, you're being too much of a jerk, Nana, even for us. Come with us, Jade. 
her saying no and then them just disappearing. <laughs> the first of a bunch of long timers disappearing over the next few months between these guys, um, Izzy and Deranged, um, Dixie, Carnage Crew. They're all going to be gone within like three months of this show. And um, I guess this is like a – it's a big roster undercard turnover moment. Sort of I guess similar to what we got after um, you know the AJ and Daniels left in 2004. There is something weird about how they keep uh, – they're really hyping you know, the, the Jay Chung angle about – like here – like there's something weird about them saying Prince Nana's treatment of this woman was so abusive. We can't show it on our home release. Yet Prince Nana also does not get fined. He does not get fired. The abuse just continues. Like it's a weird line they're walking where they're trying like it's the worst thing in the world while also not acknowledging that the company that's employing him is doing nothing to stop it. Like it, it, it's a weird mix. Yeah, that said, you know, I mean, if you listen to the last show, you know how critical I am of this Jade Chunks angle. Like, I thought it was horrible. I still think it's really bad. Um, that said, like, and I know it's going to get worse. On this show, the presentation of it was a little bit easier to tolerate because they treated it, like, at least verbally, like such a travesty. And like, so you know, like multiple times on commentary, Gabe says. He's in, like he's embarrassed to be associated with it. The outcast killers walk out over it. Like at least, and again, this is very a minor um, compliment because I still don't think <laughs> that it was. You know, I mean, go listen to the last show if you want to know my thoughts on it overall. Yeah, but I feel like it was a little bit easier to swallow on this show because they at least made they 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 rebuked it more strongly. Um, uh, I guess is what I will say. Like it it wasn't. It didn't distract from everything else going on the way that it did on the previous show because they at least made – paid lip service to the idea that it was about – you know, without without any like gross like you know CM Punk comments um, kind of undercutting <laughs> the outrage. You know what I mean? Yeah, no one this time was saying something like, oh, she likes it. Or AJ Styles <laughs> like yelling in her face like as the baby face, exactly. you know? And actually, that brings us to our next match, Matt. Perfect lead-in. AJ Styles defeated Jimmy Rave, who was escorted to the ring by Jade Chung, Mike Cruel, and Prince Nana. He won via pinfall in 16 minutes, 40 seconds, when he countered the Rave Clash into a roll-up. So, Matt, the AJ Styles-Jimmy um, Rave feud is back. We've, we saw them wrestle once before this in We're going to see them wrestle in a singles capacity two more times after this. But what do you think about this one? I, I think I like this a bit more than their first match. Um I think AJ, you know, because he wants revenge, he's more aggressive at the beginning, like really aggressive, which I thought is, you know, it's a, that's the way you want to start a match that's a, that's a part of a feud. And the crowd's really hot for it early. And and so, like, uh, Rave very quickly runs away and begs off, and AJ runs after him and kicks the crap out of him. And at one point when, when Rave is begging off, AJ just, like, boots him like in the chest and sends him flying backwards like which i've never really seen on a beg off before and i thought it was really cool um and just hitting a bunch of repeated backbreakers and like i i I just you know sometimes when you get these matches where it's like well you know why are they just wrestling when it's you know they hate each other so much like aj was playing it exactly like um he should have uh for a match like this um i also noted during this early part of the match that 
Uh, Gabe mentioned how admirable it was for the outcast killers to give up their, quote, guaranteed jobs to stick up for Jade Chung. And I was like, well, hint, hint, outcast killers. If you didn't know before the DVD came out, you just gave up your jobs. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, the uh, one negative I will say about what the way they talked about with, with Chung, obviously besides the obvious ones, is that they were still doing a bit of victim blaming. Like they were like, why is Jade Chung even sticking with Nana? And I'm not sure if we ever actually get a satisfactory answer for that from the company, you know, from the angle anyway. But um, Gabe keeps saying like, take the camera off of Nana pulling Jade Chung's hair. They they don't take the camera off of it, um, but uh, um, but at least he's saying so. Um, uh, AJ, for his part, doesn't really seem to care too much about what's going on with Jade Chung. He's just beating the crap out of Rave. And Rave actually gets, like, no offense for, like, I don't know, six, seven minutes, would you say, of, of the match? Like, would, does, that, does that sound about right? Um, Probably, yeah, early on, yeah. Like, like he really, offense. I think, the, the, the opening where, where AJ is real pissed off, like, he's dominating, like, like, early on, Jimmy Rave is even, like, running to the entranceway, trying to basically leave the building, and AJ goes, grabs him, like, he completely, yeah, dominates that opening yeah, ex- exactly. Um, uh, then early on, um, when when uh, when when AJ finally loses control, is when he goes for the Styles Clash. But the Rave's counter is actually one that I don't. Another one I don't remember seeing before, which is he like Rave's head is between AJ's legs, and he just like headbutts himself backwards into AJ's groin. Like that's a unique counter, and then he follows it up with a baseball slide, and now he's in control. Um, um, of the, of the match, and he's you know he's he hits a big clothesline to the back of AJ's head, and AJ takes a bump like on his face, on his nose. Like I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it looked pretty bad. Um, um, and that you know Nana gets uh, gets cheap shots in, um, and um, it's funny because at one point during the, the match, Gabe is on commentary. He says after this, he's going to go to the back and quote deal with CM Punk. And I'm like, is is he is he admitting he's the promoter on this in this show? Like, I I, it's, I thought that was weird, but um, uh, you know, as Rave slows things down, he's not really working on AJ's body parts. Like, he's just sort of like slowly, methodically working over AJ. Eventually, he starts to target like the midsection a little bit. You know, and the announcers say that's to set up for the Rave clash, but it, it's not micro targeted the way that you know you might normally see a guy target a body part. Um, there's one really cool sequence where um, Rave backdrops AJ onto the apron. AJ springboards back into the moonsault DDT, but Raves holds onto the rope and blocks that and then immediately hits the running knee for two. I thought that was just like a really cool sequence of moves. Um, at one point, AJ teases a brain buster on the apron. Rave maneuvers back into the ring, and AJ hits like a springboard shoulder tackle, gets a two count. Um, and then they're up at the top. Uh, and AJ headbutts Rave off, but then Nana comes and crotches AJ, and Rave puts AJ over his shoulders and just lifts him up and drops him rib first on the turnbuckle and spears him for a two. And that's kind of when the uh, you know this he starts to target the the midsection. But the match is over pretty quickly after that. Uh, Rave goes for another Rave clash, but AJ reverses it and get, gets a roll up pin. So AJ wins, but it's he doesn't get to hit the uh, hit the age styles clash which is what his big goal was you know i think yeah. winning's better but um aj wants to hit the styles <laughs> clash and so now they're one and one um it really told like a pretty solid heel versus baby face story and i really liked aj's fa- uh 
um, fire at the beginning. I don't think it ever reached like really high levels. I'm not sure if they were trying, but you know, given that they had a decent amount of time, I think that that later part of the match could have been more. I guess the idea is that they were saving more for like future matches, but. I think for as well as the match started, I was mildly disappointed with what it turned out to be overall, but I thought it was still pretty good, and I still think the better of the two matches between them so far. I agree on the quality of this match. I think I might prefer their last match a little bit more than this, but I would give this like three and a quarter, three and a half stars, but somewhere around there. I I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I like that AJ was so you know, really had a chip on his shoulder at first, which is how he should have reacted in this feud. And I I, I wrote my notes kind of responding to what you just said. Like, this to me felt like the kind of match you have in the middle of the feud where you're trying to have a good match, but you're also maybe saving something because you know there's rematches coming. Um, Although I know Jimmy Rave has said that he they were always on the same page in this feud. He maybe didn't always like how it turned out. So we'll see if they do have the bigger, better match on the, when we rewatch their next couple matches, um, you went over pretty much all the spots. I, I really liked th- that sequence. You mentioned where, um, rave counters the, uh, the moon salt into the inverted DDT by just holding the ropes and, and styles goes down and then he hits the running knee. That was one of my, one of my favorite sequences of the whole night. I think, I think that just all the way it worked all together so quickly, it looked really good. Um, like that Ray broke out the spear that, that it was cool that you pointed out that, that cool counter he did with the backwards headbutt to get out of the styles clash. Um, just some really cool stuff like that. There were a couple little weird moments, but not really anything that big of a deal. There was one where um, AJ hit a drop kick t- to uh, Rave's midsection, and Rave immediately starts selling his mouth, even though like AJ's drop kick caught him like just in the stomach. And Prezak was like, "Oh, it caught him right in his face." And it was one of those things which it, it's always I always feel like the move when someone hits something and it's not where they planned on hitting it, just sell where it actually hit because on a moment like that, it was really clear. It didn't come anywhere near his face and both commentary and rave were just selling the face anyway. Um, there was also, I noticed AJ kept checking like a tooth during this match. So I don't know if he got knocked, like something hit him and loosened his tooth, but he kept checking a tooth. And like you said, for something to watch, if anyone's watched this match, really take a note where Rave does the lariat from behind. Because, like Matt said, AJ takes like this hellacious bump on like his face and shoulder from taking a clothesline from behind. It's one of those things where sometimes guys that are athletic that are really going for it, you know, they'll just take an, a, a, a routine bump and decide, you know, I'm going to half kill myself just because, because I can, because I'm AJ Styles. But Matt, the most important thing I have to talk about about this. I have a question to ask you, which is, am I going crazy here? Because there's a moment where the match goes to the apron, and I think Dave Prasek says they're in Canadian territory when they're fighting on the apron. Did he say that? What what does that mean? I'm Canadian. Matt, I don't know what that means. Is the apron Canadian territory? Is that like an up north threat? Like, what? I... I missed that, and I don't know. And I'm hoping that he didn't really say it, and you just like are were dreaming it, and like are going insane. That would be the best case scenario here. But no, I, I rewound it once, but he literally—I think they were fighting on the apron, and Prezi goes, "They're in Canadian territory." Hmm. It's I, weird. The, the, I mean, okay, so I'm just basing the, on a, a phrase that I don't even remember hearing. I believe you, but I'm going to try to logic this out. If. America is the inside of the ring. 
then right outside yeah. the border of America would be Canadian territory. Like, that's the only thing I could think of. Oh, and that explains why whenever someone goes backstage, the announcers always say they're going to the North Pole. Like, completely yeah. makes sense. Okay, you got exactly. it. Exactly. And like um, – <laughs> yeah, and like if you're brawling in the crowd, you're right in Oceania. <laughs> <laughs> they're taking a little trip to Alaska. Ooh, watch out for the table. Um, so <laughs> – God, we're goofy. Um, so uh, something that – I don't know if this happened during the match or after the match because the live reports I've seen – kind of have paint a little bit different pictures but either way this is something we can tell you definitely did not make the dvd and i'll first go to the observer dave Meltzer wrote during this match the aj versus jimmy wraith mike cruel laid out matt striker not the one they used to use in ring of honor but the fired new york school teacher so yes apparently matt striker you know as of announcing later on in wwe and currently tna fame was on the show and this was short asha it gets explained in the next note i have because mike johnson also wrote about this he wrote, Matt Stryker, the indie wrestler who was fired from his position as a high school teacher after using sick days to work a Zero One tour, also debuted for Ring of Honor. He came out to Van Halen's Hot for Teacher. That probably wasn't the best idea for someone who wants his job back. He did an interview segment thanking everyone for their support and ended up attacked by the embassy. This sets up a Mike Kroll versus Matt Stryker bout for tonight in Manhattan. Somewhere in all this, the outcast killers quit the embassy over Nana's treatment of valet Jay Chung. The storyline with Chung is she's an impoverished woman from Vietnam and is working as Jimmy Rave's footstool to earn money for her family back home. I expect she'll get a huge pop whenever she turns babyface. So couple things. I guess before the Matt Stryker thing, that last thing Mike Johnson says plays on something you said earlier, Matt, which is, you know, Ring of Honor hasn't really explained why Jade Chung is allowing herself to get abused. But clearly, you know, whether that was on the website or something we didn't see, like, I mean, I think that's supposed to be what we're supposed to know is that the idea that, oh, she's from Vietnam and if she doesn't work for them, she'll like, she'll be poor or have to go back. Because I think there was one other non-pro where he said something like, hey, do you like – want to go back to your like 17 brothers and sisters in Vietnam, but they don't really talk about that a lot, do they so far? No, they don't, they barely talk about it. It's about, I mean, clearly what it's a takeoff on is, is Virgil, right? And, and Ted DiBiase, yeah. um, you know, where he was like, you know, think about your family, think about your mother right before um, Virgil turned face, but they don't do it as well because they don't give her like any character or, you know, chance to really, you know, tell her story in the same way, um, you know, and, and if, if Nana did include important details in this promo, they, you know, uh, cut it out <laughs> of the DVD. So, um, you know, yes, I, I, I got that that was like the vague implication, but it's not really played upon so well to the point where it justifies the angle, I don't think. Um uh, and Matt Stryker not yeah. on this show at all, and not on, and he does have a match with a uh, Mike Kroll on the next show. Yes, but that also does not make DVD. Yes, and I was there for that and uh, remember it quite well. And yeah, for whatever reason, I forget why they cut out all the Matt Stryker segments from both shows, even though he got over very well. So I don't know if it was related to WWE or what, the, or just you know, since he's not their guy, they might as well not waste DVD time promoting him. Um, once he signed with WWE, which I think he probably had by the time these shows came out. Um, I'm not positive about that, though. Um, but yes, he was he was on these shows, he was promoted, he was over, um, and he performed, at least uh, what I remember from Manhattan, relatively well. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. 
Um, that said, yeah. there was pl- the, you know this DVD was pretty packed, so I, I guess they didn't need to include it. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of a, it's a weird fifteen minutes of fame he had at this time for like Mike Johnson said, getting fired because he from a teaching job because he used sick days to work a zero one tour like that was true and that was kind of like I mean he was on the indie scene before that but that was kind of like. The thing that he was most famous for before he signed with WWE, I think, was yeah. I mean, and was, obviously, this all happened very quickly. That's what got that's him. Signed. That's, what, that's got, what that's what got him signed with WWE. He would not have been signed at that time if it wasn't for that notoriety. That's probably why he got these bookings with Ring of Honor this weekend. It one hundred, it one hundred percent is. This was like what was in the news, and it was like, oh, we're going to bring Matt Stryker in. Like everyone's talking about him. That is one hundred percent the reason. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't even. I don't even think they pretended otherwise. What a weird little time capsule of that era. But uh, yeah. uh, after the match, Gabe notes that no one was able to hit the Styles or the Rave Clash. So that's how Gabe's kind of selling the continuation of the feud, which is like you were saying, you would prefer the win. But they're kind of building this feud off of, you know, it's about which of their finishers are better, which are the same move. So at that point, Raven Styles John the ring afterwards. Not only attempts to attack Styles from behind, but AJ catches him. He's ready to hit him with the uh, Styles Clash. He has him in the position. But then Ray puts a plastic bag over AJ's head from behind, attempting to suffocate him. AJ quickly gets out of it, and he rolls to the floor, where AJ puts it on him again very briefly. I mean, Ray puts it on him again very briefly. It comes off, and Ray at this point just walks away to the back with the rest of the embassy. This, to me, felt like they were trying to do like another... Another one of the angles that Jimmy Ray's been doing a lot in this year with like the, you know, the, the aerosol spray in people's eyes or the punk cheese grater on the stomach tattoo. And this felt like the punk cheese grater stomach tattoo one where it's not that good and kind of a, and I, I believe Rave said that this was his idea and it wasn't that good. And obviously it's referencing the famous Terry Funk Ric Flair one, but like, Plastic bags, unless it's like a really thick, like almost like a, I don't know, like a clothing store like bag or something like you would use to hold dry clean. Like just a, like it looks like just like a plastic garbage bag. It's hard to take that seriously when it's pretty easy for a wrestler to tear through that, you know. Yeah, I mean so well, it, not, it even, not even a plastic garbage bag, like a flimsy one that you'd get at like a, like a convenience store or something. And yeah. like and like, yeah, you literally just like put your finger, push your finger into it like a little and it's and you're done. It's over. You 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 solve the suffocation problem. Yeah, I um, I guess I appreciate it. they're tr- like they're trying to make Jimmy Ray be this like dastardly guy who has all these different ways of being like going too far with his evil ways. Yeah. But like, yeah, this was corny. And hey, you know what? Some some things don't always work. This was not this was not that bad, but it wasn't good either. Yeah. Yeah, this, this write this out down in the like at least you, you tried something file. Like I appreciate the effort, but exactly. didn't work. Um, Nigel McGuinness at this then came out. He uh, defeated Vordell Walker via pinfall in three minutes thirty three seconds after he hit the Tower of London. Um, this is another match like the opener with the Heartbreak Express, where I don't know if this was a longer match that was edited down, but either way we only see again or if it was always this short but either way we only see three and a half minutes of wrestling and part way through that we get another just like the heartbreak express match there's weird like pixelation then a test bars or whatever and then we get shots of matt hardy and this time we see his full face he says matt hardy version 1.0 is coming and he tells christopher daniels to get ready for a double dose of mattitude very weird kind of like that's basically all he says 
And then we go back to the match. But really, the most noteworthy thing about this match is get this down for your edition of Ring of Honor Trivial Pursuit because this is the very first Ring of Honor match ever that Lenny Leonard announces for. He does it with uh, Dave Prezak. Um, Lenny had previously announced in FIP. And I believe, you know, I've listened to a few Lenny Leonard interviews on different podcasts now, and he said, you know, they. We're bringing him in because Gabe had so many responsibilities now. It was time to lighten Gabe's load a bit. And he said that the uh, the prep for this was Gabe gave him the uh, previous three months of Ring of Honor DVDs and told him just to watch those. And Lenny felt like he was still not up to snuff in these first few months. He he felt like Prezak really carried him with the knowledge of the product. And you'll note you'll notice on these shows as we review them. Um, Lenny doesn't call many matches at first, and he says that was by design to kind of ease them in where, like, they would pick a match or two matches, and then they'd pick a half a show, and then, you know, eventually they, they were working his way into calling the whole show, almost giving him kind of training wheels, and we'll see. In fact, he only announces one other match on the rest of this show, but this is the first match he ever called on a Ring of Honor show, and I'll say the match itself it's only three something minutes, and unlike the the opener, which I felt there were some cool spots for the the young the uh, the act trying to break their way in, Wardell Walker just again maybe this was he was part of a longer match. He does not look good here. I don't I don't think he's suited for three minute bursts. He he just very basic, doesn't have the charisma. And there's a really ugly spot where uh, Nigel attempts to reverse an Irish whip and Wardell just seems to have no idea what's going on. He doesn't go along with it. He kind of freezes and he seems to kind of panic and try to think, I've got to do something. And what he decides to do is to reach around and give Nigel a weird slap on his thigh. (laughs) It was like, it was like he kind of just panicked and didn't know what to do. But Matt, the the weird career of Wardell Walker in Ring of Honor continues. I've never seen a guy get brought in with so much hype in Ring of Honor, and then almost immediately it feels like they gave up on him, and that's what happened here. And I think this is his second to last ROH show, at least in terms of the main card. Um, I, I mean, he works a throwaway six man on the next show, so yeah, I think that's it. Um, yeah, it's interesting with Lenny Leonard because like this show, they really eased him in, like one barely of a match, which is this, and then one other match, and like and then. I think he works close to the full show on the next night. Actually, like they 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 did they 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 so it's like they really ease him in and then they throw him right in there, which is you know which is interesting uh, how they approach it. But um, yeah, I don't get what what they're doing with Matt Hardy. Was it a way to say well we don't have promos in this show, but Matt Hardy managed to sneak in a promo? Like why would they not just be like okay, well this guy's coming in to wrestle Christopher Daniels, let's give him a promo like we did every other guy who's coming in um, to a to a show, but. Whatever that was their choice with Matt Hardy. I, I guess we'll we'll talk plenty about um, Matt Hardy and his whole deal uh, on a couple of episodes from now. Um, but yeah, as far as this, um, yeah, Vordell. I I do think that this match was was clipped probably relatively significantly. I don't know how long the match was, but like you know, they, they just were starting the match, like locking up, and then they cut to Matt Hardy, and then when we're back, um, Nigel hits the rebound lariat, and both guys are down. So like that kind of selling tells me we just you know missed a lot of the match right, um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and they and they were both selling as tired too. So I, I actually wonder if this match was significantly longer than it was um, on this. Um, um, but yeah, uh, it was um, 
it was what we saw wasn't particularly good, like you said with Vordell, just didn't seem ready for prime time. Obviously, um, Gabe thought so too. You know, maybe if they'd given him a little bit more time before they started bringing him in and pushing him, he would have gotten over more. But they didn't, and you know, unfortunately, and uh, yeah, it was just so it ended up just being like a squash match win for Nigel, I guess, because you know, even when a match is relatively back and forth. If somebody wins in what looks like three minutes, it basically feels like a squash match. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you can't have a good match with 2005 Nigel McGuinness, you figure Gabe's probably not going to be that high on you after that, right? (laughs) Yeah, and and I feel like in Ring of Honor, like at this point, you don't need to have a great match on your first match. It's not like you'd be given up on that quick. But I feel like when you first appeared in Ring of Honor, a clock starts where you have to have some kind of notable performance within a certain number of shows. I feel like this was the show where it's like, he, the, the clock is almost hitting midnight here. Like he's done enough shows now, even though there've only been sporadic appearances and he's yet to have like one, even one show where you go, wow, he really like not even a good match. Just even like he looked great here, you yeah. know, and my, my favorite Vordell match in ROH was the one against Kevin Steen. And even that is not remembered as a particularly good match. Yeah, um, Kevin Steen remembers hating that match. We like it more than Kevin Steen, but it's funny. Like what we consider his best match is a match. Kevin Steen's like, yeah, that was a piece of shit. And yeah, um, it is interesting, though, on commentary, even in the midst of what looks like they've completely given up on him, they still have Lenny's calling Vordell the hottest prospect in wrestling. Prezak, again, keeps talking about how, like, Samoa Joe seems so much potential in this guy. Like, they're still trying to give him, like, the big endorsement, even though the booking does completely does not match, like, the words they're saying to talk about him. But, um... That brings us to a four-corner survival match, one of the most star-studded four-corner survivals probably Ring of Honor ever put on. Austin Aries defeated Homicide, James Gibson, and Samoa Joe in 25 minutes, 46 seconds, when he pinned Joe after hitting the 450 splash. Uh, Matt, just super star-studded. I mean, you've got the last two before Punk Ring of Honor World Champions, and then in Gibson and um, Homicide, you got two of the next three Ring of Honor Champions after Punk. That, that's pretty crazy. They all have in one four-way. Uh, sometimes I look up the reviews after I write my own notes of the match after I've watched it. I've seen a big spread on this match compared to a lot. I've seen people go like into the four star, like four and a quarter, like saying this is one of the best four ways they've ever seen. I've seen people give this two and a half and go disappointing. Uh, There's a pretty wide swing, I think, in what people think of this match. What did you think about watching this one? I think I'm pretty close to the high end on this. I don't know about like well into the fours, but like up there. You know, I there I've never been a huge fan of these four corner survivals in terms of like especially when they go long. Like you always say you like them better when they're kind of like scrambly. Um, yeah. And when they are slow and, and long like this, they often get boring. And I thought the one on the show before this, the Death of War Dishonor one, was kind of like that. This one I thought was really clicked. I thought Joe was fantastic. I thought Gibson looked good. I thought Aries looked good. I thought Homicide looked good. I thought this was just this was just really a a really good match. Like I, I mean, you know, I think it kind of started similar to some of these other ones, but it just because the personalities click so well, I don't think it got boring. Um, but like like Aries and Gibson started off, they did you know kind of the slow feeling out process, and Prezak said on commentary. Both of these men are one step ahead of one another, which broke my brain a little <laughs> bit. Um, but um, once my brain um, was um, got fixed, you know, there was there was some storylines early, like um, 
like Homicide didn't want to have to wrestle Gibson, so like he would get tagged in, and then he would like tag right or tag right out or tell Gibson to tag in Joe. And for some reason, Gibson did tag in Joe. I would think he wouldn't want to. Um, they don't go quite as intensely with how Gibson kind of wants to get his hands on Homicide here as um, as they did in the previous match, at least at first, which might be one drawback to the match because, you know, on storyline, you'd think that Gibson would really want to. And then as the match wears on, Gibson does get more aggressive with Homicide. Um, so, so that's good. But um, there was one point early in the match when Homicide was kind of like... Um, stalling outside the ring where you see him and smokes on the outside and smokes like puts his finger to the head of some like some fan in the crowd and does like a like a hand like gun thing like you know like shoots him in with 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 a hand and then and the fan is like like and this fan is not a big tough looking guy he has glasses like you know kind of kind of thin and he's like you want some of this he says that to Smokes, and I thought that was really funny. I was like, man, good for that guy for living his fantasy of, of stepping up to Julius Smokes. Um, well, I, I got to bring this up just real quick. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, there's a note from Mike Johnson. Again, this is another thing that does not make the DVD. He wrote, at one point, Julius Smokes during this match got a woman so angry, she hopped the rail to go after him and was escorted out of the building. Wow, this is like, this crowd is like old school. <laughs> um <laughs> That's fun, but um, yeah, it, I mean, maybe hey, maybe this guy that I'm talking about is like one of the toughest guys around, and I don't know what I'm saying. So maybe that's her husband or something. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like he was just having fun, like being like, "You want yeah. some of this?" But like, I thought it was funny. Um, they, they uh, then when when Joe and Homicides get to it, Joe actually monkey flips Homicide, which you don't see Joe doing monkey flips too often. Then they do some like fast paced arm draggy type type stuff, and. Joe throws Homicide to the floor, and as he goes for the elbow suicida, he realizes Homicide is gone. So Smokes just, like, shakes his crotch at Joe, and Joe's really confused. <laughs> and then meanwhile, Homicide, this whole time, has been crawling under the ring from one side to another, and then comes back in the other side and goes for the tope cone helo. But Joe just, like, kicks him to cut him off. And I was like, man, those guys have wrestled a lot, and they figured out a good spot that they had never done before, so good for them. I enjoyed it. Um, but, you know, the match goes on, it, you know, it slows down a little bit, um, you know, Homicide's working on Gibson, he, uh, he puts, uh, he puts, uh, him in a chin lock with a knee to the back, and they end up outside, and Gibson just out of nowhere suplexes Homicide onto the timekeeper's table, and, like, I love table spots when you are not expecting a table spot, like, to me, those are my favorite kind, and I to me, like this was a really good one because, like, I don't think anyone expected someone to go through a table at this in this match at this point in the match, and so like I thought that was very effective, and so that's obviously homicide tags out at that point, and at this point it seems like they're kind of working on Gibson, like they're kind of trying to um, wear him down. Aries hits a belly to back suplex where he like folds Gibson up basically like an accordion and covers, and Joe breaks that up. Um, then uh, Aries kind of throws Gibson into the corner so Joe could tag himself in. And Joe and Aries kind of... Um, um, excuse me. Uh, sorry. So that so Aries could tag in Joe. And then it's Joe versus Gibson. So now Joe's working on Gibson. He does some of his combinations. And he's been a face in peril for a while here. Gibson has. Um, he keeps getting his comebacks cut off. Um, and like they're kind of targeting Gibson in the back and in the neck. And 
Gibson tries to tag out but to Joe but and gets a sunset flip hope spot on Homicide. And eventually, he backs Homicide into the corner and tags in Joe. And, like, I don't know. Like, the, my, one of my big criticisms is they spent a lot of time working on Gibson, but his tag out, like his hot tag, is not very dramatic. Usually when you want to build up a guy trying to tag out, it be, it's a little more dramatic than that. But... Uh, that said, Joe does come in basically like he's working a hot tag, like he's he's uh, slapping the crap out of Homicide, doing power slams, face wash, and running boot on Homicide, and he knocks a- uh, Ares off the apron mid-run while he's doing the running boot. All that stuff is great. This is At this point in the match, Joe just is on fire, and he's on fire, I think, for pretty much the rest of the match. Um um, you know, Gibson goes to work on Homicide some more. Homicide hits an eights crusher out of nowhere, tags out to Ares. Um, they continue to work on Gibson's midsection. Um, and eventually, uh, Joe gets back in, goes to work on Ares and Homicide again, hits the ST Joe on Ares and clotheslines Homicide. And that's when Gibson knocks Joe out of the ring. And I feel like this is when the match gets, gets really, really good. Um, he goes, um, on top, but Homicide stops him with a chin breaker, and Homicide hits a tope con hilo onto Joe, flying into the crowd, and basically right onto Green Lantern fan. I don't know if you noticed that, but like, <laughs> and his tope con hilo. Then Ares hit the heat-seeking missile on Homicide. Then Gibson comes off the top with the flipping dive onto Ares and Homicide, which leaves Joe in the ring, and he does his big, like, twisting splash over the top rope onto all three. It wasn't the best one of those tw- twisting splashes he ever did, I thought, but it was pr- effective enough. You know, it's still impressive when Joe does it. Um, uh, then uh, he uh, he whips uh, Homicide into the guardrail, whips Ares into the guardrail, hits the ole ole on Ares. Uh, he goes to hit one on Gibson, but Homicide pounces him, like literally, like a Monty Brown-style pounce into the guardrail as he ran at Gibson, which the crowd goes nuts for. Um then Homicide goes for the ole ole on Joe, but Joe gets up and backdrops him into the guardrail. And, like, both of those counters I thought were, like, super well-timed. And the crowd just is loving it. They're chanting ROH. Um, back in the ring, Joe is fighting with Gibson. They um, And then uh, gets the STF on. Ares breaks that up. And so Joe just, like, knocks Ares out with one slap. Um, Joe's, like, he's slapping the crap out of Gibson. Um and Gibson knocks Joe down basically just by like collapsing onto his legs. I actually don't even know if Joe was supposed to go down there. He might have just like shoot fallen after Gibson collapsed onto him. But either way, I thought it worked well. Um, but and that's kind of when uh, Gibson he hits a running knee and a bridging German suplex on Joe for two. Um, uh, then he goes for the guillotine choke with Joe standing up. And so Joe just runs him into the corner. Ares tags himself in. Uh, Gibson helps Ares double-team brain buster uh, Joe. Ares covers. Gibson breaks him up, breaks it up. Ares goes for the 450, but Homicide shoves Ares off and just sends him flying into the guardrail, like just like flying backwards. Um, then Homicide hits the lariat to the back of Joe, but Gibson knocks him out of the ring, and they both fall out. And then Ares comes in and hits the 450 and gets the pin. Um, you know, I know I spent a lot of that just, like, describing move sequences. And there was a story to it early on with Gibson and Homicide and working over Gibson. You know, and I guess you could criticize the match by saying that didn't really play into the finish enough and didn't really go lead anywhere. But I thought that just the guys were just so on point in this match, and Joe was so on fire, and the last 10 minutes were so exciting 
and it never got boring despite its length. It was like something like 25 minutes. That I just thought it was great. Like I, I thought it was a really good centerpiece match to the show. Like it really was like a glue, like just like a like if you went to this show and you're like I saw that match, I feel like you would go home really happy. Like these four like top top wrestlers in the world at this time, really putting on a show. And I thought that's what this was. Like it wasn't it didn't it didn't aspire to be anything more than that. But for what it was, I thought it was just really really good. I thought everyone was really on their game. So I was not as high on it as you. I was not as low on it as some other people, but I, I do have a lot of the problems with this match that I have with a lot of these four ways in Ring of Honor where I've just gotten fatigued where it's not impossible to tell a really good story in a four-way because we've seen it with like uh, the crowning a champion four-way that, and that one went in an hour and that told a really good story. And But like you mentioned that I've said before, I generally think these four ways are better when they're spotty because it seems like it's harder for guys to tell a really engaging story in a four way. I feel like four ways are probably like the wrestling equivalent of speed dating where you're getting these brief little combinations that keep switching and it's like it's hard to build chemistry and if you do build chemistry even that kind of sucks because your partner's switching out like you're like oh we're finally getting some oh someone else is to come in and these it wasn't that the match is bad like i would give it like three and a half stars it it was more that these four guys are top of the card great wrestlers and you know i expect even more from them and i felt like this match it just even though technically you know it's building up the aries joe match which happens the next night and it's trying to keep the homicide uh noble feud going and everyone kind of has a history with almost everyone else in the match I just it felt kind of just like a random four way in some ways and and everyone was working hard and it was but just I don't know it felt kind of there was good action but there was something about it just didn't kind of feel essential or important to me for a match this high on the card with these names in it but I do completely agree that the last few months once that dive training happens and all those that the fight on the outside with those really cool like counters happen that you mentioned i think that's when this match kicks up into like a really great gear where where that from that point on the match is great those final few minutes um that that james gibson german suplex with a bridge on samoa joe looks so good and as always james gibson ex- execution is so good he has these really good snappy leg drops that i think are like the most painful a leg drop could look like you know you, you grew up on like hulk hogan these like they, they're like really quick and short but he kind of just explodes into them i really like that stuff i really like the finish where um you know, Gibson and Aries team up to hit Joe with the brain buster. And from there, it's kind of like a scramble between homicide Gibson and Aries to try and figure out like to fight each other off and be like, okay, we've hurt Joe. Who's going to be able to get to finish him off. And, you know, Aries ends up getting to be the one that does. And which builds up the storyline that, you know, Aries has Joe's number heading tomorrow night. He always beats Joe, but there was a couple things I didn't like though, going to it. One would be, um, apart from the, my general criticism, criticism that I went over at the start, one would be, I felt like Gibson, he spent so much of this match being almost like the face in peril, even though it wasn't a tag match. Like, he spent so much of this match selling in the middle of it and not tagging out, and everyone else kept, like, voluntarily tagging in and out while they were, like, in control 
of a really per- beat up Gibson that was getting progressively more beaten up. And when a four way in Ring of Honor is one fall to a finish, the first fall wins. And Gabe at one point tried to explain like one why one guy would tag out, and he tried to do that once, just like oh maybe he just wants to get a rest. But then afterwards he just gave up. And there's a moment like you described like being disappointed at this moment where. Gibson didn't have a really triumphant tag out after being beaten up on so long. What I was more frustrated with was that moment you describe is like Gibson's been beat up on for minutes and minutes and minutes. Everyone's been tagging in and out and he and homicide like get shoved into a corner and Joe is in that corner. At that point, he has the choice. He can either tag in via homicide or Gibson and he goes out of his way to like lean around homicide and tag on Gibson's back. And it's like, in that story of the match, you would much rather wrestle Gibson, who has been beaten to shit for minutes on end, than, like, a relatively fresh homicide, and yet he goes out of his way to, like, go after homicide, which, again, I didn't feel made much sense. And I also felt like you're right that Joe did look really good in this match, but there was also – it was also a night where it felt like Joe was kind of snake bit because there was, like, three ugly spots in this match around Joe, and usually you don't see one. There was, like, one where – Homicide looked to do like a spin around Joe's head and drop into an arm drag and it looked like they kind of missed on it. It didn't look very good. There was a spot where the ST Joe, you say, where, you know, Aries does runs into for the corner Uranagi counter didn't look that good. I think Aries and Joe have kind of had a bad looking one of those before. So I don't know if they just have some weird chemistry on that move. And then that four man, the dive train spot in the end where everyone hits a dive and it ends with Joe hitting his big, not the elbow suicida, but the big kind of twisting dive, the torneo over the top rope. I felt really bad for homicide because if you look like Joe teased it for a long time and yet Aries and Gibson, don't get up to help catch him. And it's only Homicide who's trying to catch him. And even Homicide's out of position. And, you know, Joe barely gets over the rope. So, like, you can see Homicide, like, lunge forward to try and catch Joe when he realizes he's not going to get out very far. And Joe just catches him right in the head with his feet. Um, and, like, that's the only part of him he really gets. And it's like, oh, shit. But overall, again, I'm just really getting four-way fatigued. I feel like so many of these are less than the sum of the wrestlers in them. And I guess we should also mention, like we were talking about earlier, Lenny Leonard already off commentary after the last match, Gabe's back in this position, but Lenny will be back for the next match and then he'll be off for the main event. So just back and forth, back and forth. And I I do want to just for my part, as far as the four ways go, um, I, I would rank this as definitely in the top three, four ways that we've reviewed um, in ROH. Um, you know, the ones that stand out, obviously the first one for the title, the hour-long one, if that even counts. Then the one at the first, Death Before Dishonor, with uh, Cabana, Whitmer, Moff, and Homicide. And then this one. Like, I feel like like those are like, that's like the elite tier of these types of matches. I mean, you know, that's, you know, not like that there's so many great ones, but I, I do think this one stands above the rest, um, just because of the quality of the guys in it and the level of stuff that they did. I think the final few minutes do. I, I I think I would still put those other two like on a much higher tier than this one. But this might be on a tier. It might be those in a tier, then this one that in a different tier, then a separate tier for everything else to me. But like, I mean, yeah, it definitely was better than a lot of the generic four ways. But I still felt that my opinion was it still had some of that generic. But again, looking online, I've seen a, like compared to a lot of ring of honor matches, very divergent opinions on this one. There's people that liked it even more than you. There are people that liked it less than me. So kind of all over the place, but watch for yourselves, folks. You decide 
after the match, Elk Shelley again appears in the ring out of, uh, from the crowd. He super kicks Aries before running away. Homicide and Gibson brought ringside. So we're just continuing feuds here, even though neither of those feuds really build to like a big singles match at this point. So, uh, um, and that brings us to the semi-main event. Christopher Daniels makes his return match to Ring of Honor, scored to the ring by Allison Danger. He defeated Colt Cabana via pinfall in 23 minutes, two seconds after he hit the best moonsault ever. Um, I thought this match was disappointing, Matt. I thought this was kind of, you know, Christopher Daniels is a very good wrestler. He's had some great matches. I feel like this is the kind of match I think of when I think about the bad Christopher Daniels, where it's slow. The work is very good technically. The execution is good. It it, it kind of builds in in a logical way where you know it gets more you know more action packed as it goes on. Um, you know, Daniels even does his usual where he works over a guy's midsection, which I like because not a lot of wrestlers work over midsections. But there's just something soulless and kind of boring about it. And especially for a match where it's got so much storyline juice going into it, where we're supposed to feel like, you know, Gabe's been selling on this night that Cabana resents that punk is making him do his dirty work, taking on Daniels. And Daniels is so pissed because, you know, he wants to go after punk for what he did to him 16 months ago. And, you know, they had this big second city saints versus prophecy feud that never got finished with between Daniels and, and, and uh, the second city saints. And then the match starts and Colt's just being classic goofy comedy Colt and he keeps wanting a handshake and of course Daniels won't give him a handshake and Daniels is just getting pissed off that he's not taking things serious and Colt's just like, I just want a good wrestling match and it feels kind of weird because it's kind of making Daniel seem like a heel, like he's this fuddy-duddy that doesn't just want to get along with good, you know, comedy, jovial face uh, Colt Cabana. And it, at some points, the crowd actually gets to be like 50-50 in cheering for both guys. But yet in storyline, you know, Daniel's supposed to be the mega baby face now, like the triumph of hero coming back, trying to save us from CM Punk stealing the title. But all in all, like even as down as I am, I would still give it like three and a quarter stars, which I'm giving like a lot of matches on this show, but I just feel like it's Daniel's first match back. Colt's a very good opponent. They wrestled, they got a lot of time, you know, 23 minutes is, you know, a good amount of time. And really, I thought the match got only really got exciting halfway through when punk got to the ring i felt like you know sometimes that kind of stuff distracts from a match punk comes from ringside like halfway through this match and he starts to really cheerlead um cabana he he uh, at the end of the match comes when he tries to interfere he uh he pulls a chain out of his tights and he wraps around his fist, but he has his back to the ref when he's doing it. And so when he sees someone coming up behind him, he hits him with the chain wrap fist. But of course it's Colt Cabana, not Daniels. And then that allows Daniels to get the win. So all the interference backfires, but I felt like the match got better once you had the emotion. Punk was bringing the emotion that I feel like the two guys in the match were missing when he was at ringside. And Matt, before I get to your opinion, to your opinions, I just want to say what my favorite part of this match was, which was when Punk is pulling the chain out of his tights to wrap around his fist, he's reaching his trunks, and it's taking a few seconds to get the chain, and you can hear just one woman in the crowd scream like, ooh, sexy, and I just wrote in my notes, did she think Punk was going to interfere <laughs> against Daniels by pulling out his dick? Like, like what did she think was about to happen? Like, I was like, what? Because 
because it's just one isolated woman. You can just hear the crowd like, ooh, and it's like, what do you think is coming? Because you're going to be disappointed. It's it's a chain. It's it's, but uh, otherwise, you know. That was my favorite part of this match. Although, also, it was also at one point, Danger keeps jawing at Colt. At one point, you can just hear Colt yell at her, put a bra on, which was like a weird shaming tisk tisk. And later on, Colt yells at her, shut up, you whore. Wow. So, Colt not being sex positive here. He's very much slut shaving here. Jesus. But, oh, what did you think, Matt? Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't hear him say that. That's that's bad. Um, but yeah, um, I like the match less than you did actually. Um, wow. Yeah, if, I mean, well, if you're if you're giving it three and a quarter and like think it's on the level of like AJ versus Raven, like just all just like a quarter star below the four way, then yeah, I like this match a lot less than you. Um, yeah, maybe I overrated this a little bit. It's uh, weird because it's one of those matches where, again, like it's, sometimes Daniels has matches like this where like. The execution of the moves, like, it, it's very competent, like, profession. It's, it's professional wrestling, that, like, in literally professional wrestling, but yet it just leaves, it feels cold and kind of just empty. Sure, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's true, that the moves were all executed well. Um, but, you know, you mentioned, like, it should have been better because it got so much time, but to me, like, that was the number one problem with the match, was that it got so much time. Um, it should have been like half as long for what they were going for, in my opinion. Like literally, like I like a twelve-minute match. I feel like would have been fine for what they were doing here. For one thing, generally speaking, I feel like twenty minutes should be reserved for a match with like that you like you're anticipating. You know, a match that's been built up for a while, or a match that just like in terms of the like athletic pairing will be pretty likely to captivate a crowd for a long time just based on the quality of the wrestling. And I don't think that Colt Cabana versus Christopher Daniels, two excellent wrestlers, but I don't think where they were in terms of each other at this point, like I think you could look at that match on paper and know that 23 minutes would be too long for a match like that, Uh, especially when you're talking about so late on the show. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. But what adds to the fact that this is too long is that they weren't even – they weren't even going for like a really good, exciting semi-main event like wrestling match. They were going for an angle. This match was about the storyline. You don't need to do twenty, like you know, twenty minutes of stalling to get to that storyline. You know, they could have done five minutes, then had Punk come out and the match is over seven minutes later. That's like to me, that would have been better. Um, you know, the story is that Daniels is really mad at Cabana because of everything that's happened in the past between the Saints and Daniels. Obviously, makes sense, right? They put him out of yeah. Ring of Honor. Cabana literally says at one point, like, I'm a good guy now, and, like, tries to get Daniels not to be mad at him, like, I, and, like, just wrestle. Like, and, I, and I appreciate um, that, um, that aspect of it. Like, I thought that was cute. Um, I thought they were just – it went on for too long with Cabana trying to have a good time and Daniels being like, get serious. Um, there was also one note on commentary where Prezak said that Punk signed Cabana onto the match, which that's a new one, like that wrestlers could just sign other wrestlers to matches. Yeah. Um, like that that was kind of a weird storyline point. But, um, you know, so basically, the, you know, it's slow at the beginning. Daniels is like, I'm not joking around. And Cabana's like, I am joking around. And like <laughs> that that's – and then Punk – when Punk comes out, um, you're right, it does get better. But again, it goes on for too long. 
Um, you know, Cabana tries to shoo him away. He's like, it's my match, you know, when, when Punk is interfering. At one point, Punk yells to Cabana, break his neck! And Cabana just goes, no! <laughs> and I, 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 I appreciated that. Um, but yeah, like, every time they tried to get it exciting, you know, your attention was was moved to Punk. So, like, what, what's the point of belaboring this? What's the point of making it longer and longer? So, like... Yes, I don't think it was bad. Like the wrestling was was good, but it just it just wasn't the right approach to what they were trying to do. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, like um and I thought Punk was great. Like you know, at one point um Cabana hits a clothesline and then covers, but he takes a chance before that to yell hip hip and then Punk and <laughs> only Punk yells hooray. Um, before Cabana covers, um, like I thought Punk, I mean, like I said, everything Punk did on the show was great. So I, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing anyone's performance here. I just think that the trying to get 23 minutes out of this was a, I don't want to say a fool's errand, but it was just not the right approach. Like I, I I just, I just think if this match was half as long, it probably would have been pretty good. Um, as it was, I thought it was just like, much too long to to get over an angle that should have been better because it was yeah because it was too dragged out yeah i i agree and i think you make a great point where you were saying that uh you, you know this match was you know trying too long to be that what it was which was the backdrop for an angle but yet it also felt like they were trying to make this like a long, great Ring of Honor semi-vein event, except the match they were working wasn't on that level either, I don't think. So it was yeah. kind of like it was the worst of both worlds. Like, they were going for a match that wasn't kind of appropriate for what it was supposed to do, and they weren't working, they weren't succeeding at that kind of match either. So yeah. I do have another yeah. critique here, which is, and like, it's a weird critique, because it's like, I think what the seeds they're planting with Punk and Cabana are very interesting, in terms of what their dynamic could be over this whole thing. But after this show, they really don't play it up at all. Like, Cabana's sort of out of the picture. Um, in fact, I think he goes away for a few shows right after this. Uh, he, he's on the next show, and then he's gone until the Midwest shows in August. So he's kind of away for the rest of July, which you know feels like a missed opportunity because those two together – you know, would have been a very interesting dynamic. You know, maybe it was just too late to change anything. Maybe Colt is just like was already planning on going to Europe, and that was the deal. But um, you know, it's, so maybe that's not a fair critique. But still, a little bit disappointing to see what could have been. Well, also, even even on the next show, you know, obviously to, on this show, Colt's focus is all about being involved in the punk storyline. But on the next show, you know, we, we people can't forget he's in the middle of a feud with Nigel McGuinness, and so like the yeah. attention gets kind of switch back to that again you know he's still got matches to go in that so um anyway after the match christopher daniels gets on the mic and he says cm punk has become a quite a storyteller like his mother goose or something daniel says he has an easy story for punk he says it's a story about revenge if punk is saying that daniels turned his back on punk all the 16 months ago or whenever it happened he has a chance at revenge on daniels and all it will cost punk is a shot at that ring of honor world title Daniel says he just wrestled Colt, but he still has some gas in the tank. So why don't they finish what they started 16 months ago here tonight? Punk says if Daniels wants a match, they could do it non-title. But as for a title shot, Daniels can't just walk back into the company after 16 months and get one. He hasn't beaten anybody worth a damn yet. So again, a nice yeah, little that's a quite, shiv there to Colt. That's a great line. Like he says that a few times and it's like, yeah, everyone knows what's, what's going on there. Yeah. 
Punk says Daniels needs to go through the entire roster first. And if Daniels doesn't get out of the ring right now, Punk is leaving, taking the title with him to where he goes next. He wouldn't even say WWE. And no one will see a title match tonight. The crowd chants, you're a bitch. The refs try and convince Daniels to leave. Punk keeps screaming at the refs to, you know, get Daniels out of here. The crowds chant, CM pussy. Eventually, a pissed off Daniels does leave and goes to the back. And Punk steps in the ring. Punk says, on to the main event. He cuts a promo, and as he starts to cut the promo, he very strangely makes the decision to start the promo by walking all around the ring on his knees, uh, doing this like weird crab walk. Yeah, he was he doing that. He, he was doing that during the um, the promo "Death Before Dishonor." Also, it's like I don't know if that was like going to be his new thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. And he doesn't do the entire night like this, but he does start in this promo that way. He knows the fans have been sitting at their computers trying to figure out who, who, who he'd wrestle tonight, but the only one who knows is Punk himself. Punk says he came up with one name, and he teases what he calls the match that was never supposed to happen. He challenges Low Key. The lights go out, Low Key's music plays, the crowd pops, but after the music plays for a while, it eventually comes to a stop. Punk says Key is just too gutless to face him. So Punk has another option. He says a guy he used to that used to be the best wrestler in the world until Punk himself won the title, the American Dragon, Brian Danielson. Danielson's music plays. Danielson doesn't come out. Okay, so Punk says if there isn't one Ring of Honor legend that wants to fight him, maybe there's two. They recently returned to the squared circle. Ladies and gentlemen, the Briscoe Brothers. The Briscoe's music plays. The Briscoe's don't come out. Punk says he's made four challenges. No one come out, has come out, so he's leaving. And that's when Mick Foley, bang, he, he just appears. Big, huge Mick Foley reaction from the Long Island crowd. Foley makes his way to the ring, gets the mic. He says, as you can see, he spent more time at the buffet table than the gym recently. And after seeing the athletes of Ring of Honor put on a hell of a show for 11 hours, he jokes. He, he knows he's not in good enough shape to be in their league tonight, so he's not going to be the one answering Punk's challenge. Foley says he brought guests tonight. Dave LaPointe, who pitched Game 7 of an 80, 80s World Series game, came and brought his son because he heard great things about Ring of Honor. He fully also randomly name-drops a friend named Chris Giordano, who he says he watched pay-per-views at his house. He says they've spent their whole – he said this man spent his whole life in a wheelchair. Here He's here tonight. He says neither guy has ever heard him swear. He says his wife and daughter – our, our son and daughter are here tonight, I think he said. They've never heard their dad say the F word. Mick says that's about to change because Foley then goes on to say that when Punk came out here earlier with his new purple hair and three-piece suit, he couldn't help but think that Punk looked fucking ridiculous. That gets a big pop, big Foley chant. Punk says as ridiculous as Punk looked, though, he knew what he sound, he sounded even more fucking ridiculous. He says Punk knew that Danielson's in Europe right now. He knew that Loki's in Japan right now. He knew that the Briscoe brothers haven't wrestled in Ring of Honor in a year. Most ridiculous of all was Punk saying that he made Ring of Honor, though. Mick says Punk didn't make Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor made him. He says he hopes Punk makes millions of dollars. He was pulling for Punk to go to WWE for months before Punk ever got the call from them. He says Punk, though, needs to offer a shot tonight to a hungry young competitor. There's only one way to be a champ forever, and unfortunately for Punk, Gabe Sapolsky does not have a daughter he can marry. That gets a big pop. That gets a Foley chant. Uh, Punk then says... Foley is making their da that daughter comment. They're trying to make the correlation between Punk and someone Mick could never live up to. So Some, someone else Mick could never live up to, you know, trying to say he also couldn't live up to Punk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that's a good catch. Um, 
Punk's as fully as a three-time WWE champion, but he held it for what, like three weeks collectively? He goes, no, there's a, there's a guy with three initials that Foley can't hold a candle to. And Punk says, yeah, yes, Triple H has three initials, but when it comes to putting asses in seats and selling pay-per-views, Mick isn't even in JBL's league. And that gets a big ooh from the, yeah. from the know, crowd. You know what adds to that, to that line is the fact that JBL is the guy that Punk ended up beating for his first world title in WWE. Yeah, that, that, that's that's interesting. It's you know what JBL returning the favor for this night. JBL really appreciated. It. He was like Vince, I gotta go out of my way. I gotta put give the title to this kid. He 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 knows the, he knows a good wrestler. But um, Mick at this point he goes over his his three short title reigns and he you know talks about them. He, he says what I'm really proud over proud about in my career is knowing that wrestlers were better off having me in their careers. He talks about Triple H and Batista recently doing big pay per view buys and he says he'd like to think maybe his matches with Triple H had something to do with those buy rates. Mick says, you can ask Steve Austin, The Rock, and Randy Orton if their careers were better off having Mick Foley in them. The fact is, Mick did business on the way out and left the promotion in a better place than he found it. Foley asks Punk if he wants to be remembered for the five-star matches with Samoa Joe or for being the guy who stunk up the place and left it in a worse place than when he came into it. Foley says, Punk better find an athlete to wrestle from this new generation of talent. And the crowd starts to chant for Samoa Joe again because this is two straight shows where anytime they cheat, they tease that Punk's going to wrestle somebody, the crowd immediately chants for Joe because that's the match they want to see. They want to see another one of those. Punk says he's done wonders for the Ring of, for Ring of Honor, but fine. Foley helped him to get where he's going, so Punk will do this. There's someone that fits the criteria Foley is looking for, and Punk mentions how I've lost this guy at the sh- at the back at the back to basic show, and I want to avenge that loss. I want to wrestle Jay Lethal, and out Jay Lethal comes as we see a quick clip in the corner of the screen of Lethal, in fact, pinning Punk in a tag match at back to basics. So, um, Matt, another big you know verbal sparring between Foley and Punk. Um, I-, I find that you know sometimes with Mick Foley. He has this need to respond in great detail to every criticism thrown his way, even if it's in the middle of a wrestling promo that shouldn't be that much about him. And he kind of does that here. But I felt like he really did a good job, though, of kind of of making it work because he took everything, you know, he goes in this whole defense of his career and, you know, the promo starts becoming way more about Mick Foley defends his legacy than CM Punk. But then at the end, he brings it all back around where he's like, you know, my legacy isn't, you know, pay-per-view buy rates or all this stuff. My legacy is I made people's careers better. I made the promotion I worked in better, and you're going to throw that all away? Like, are you going to do that for Ring of Honor, or are you going to just, you know, walk out and not do the right thing? And I do think by making it at the end like that, he kind of did give the promo, like, a good finish that kind of gives Punk a reason to actually have a match here. But what did you think about the promo? Yeah, like I said, I think everything involving CM Punk on the show was gold, this segment included. I actually think this was Mick's best mic work in ROH so far. Um, you know, and he was good on other shows. Um, I, di- I, you know, I didn't think that the hardcore versus pure wrestling thing was that great. I thought he sold it well, but I didn't think it was great. The stuff yeah. with Joe, you know, it worked, but also, like, people didn't want to boo Mick Foley, you know? Um, I think this, he did, I think he did a great job, and I think that Punk, you know, did an even better job. I think Punk is just, was just on fire on this show. Um, you know, I really enjoyed kind of, like, the snaps and the and the comebacks the two guys had against each other. You know, I thought it worked. Um, and I thought just, the, you know, the crowd was clearly hanging on everything. Um, one thing that I found interesting... You know, with Lethal, you know, because he was the big announcement. 
because um, this was a show where a lot of people really did think Punk was going to drop the title to somebody, I think a lot of people were disappointed at first when Lethal was announced as the uh, yeah. as the um, the guy. Whereas I think if people were just kind of thinking of this more long term, they wouldn't have been as disappointed. But you know, so they have a so they because I think people were like, oh, he's going to wrestle one of the stars and lose it to one of the stars. But you know. What it did allow for was a little bit more drama in the lethal match, but down the stretch. Just because people, you know, even though I think a lot of people didn't really think they'd put the title on lethal, there was that thought in the back of people's mind, like, you know, on this show, maybe. And I think that ha- that helped the match a lot in the end. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, we'll get to the match in a sec. But yeah, I think in this match, like, there are some New Year Falls for Lethal at near the end where the crowd, like, is surprisingly loud. Like, I don't know how many of the people in the crowd bought into that Lethal could win, but I think some did. And I think this is the only show you could have booked this match where they would have believed that because I think the last show has so many crazy twists at the end that I think it did create this environment for a short time where fans really did think that, like, anything could happen because, yes, Lethal being – beating punk would have been a huge crazy surprise upset but we just saw a bunch of crazy surprises at the end of the last show so maybe this could happen and i think this was if you're ever going to do this match for the title this was the show to do it on i think yep but definitely um anyway i'll just say about the promo i thought it i already get basically yeah it's a very good promo the sparring is great um the Observer wrote about this. They said, apparently CM Punk's mic work is the best it has ever been. And Mick Foley was very complimentary of working with him when it was over. So, you know, you know, Mick was always talking to Dave probably. So, and you know, yeah, I, I think, you know, Mick and Punk had a very good rapport at this point. And I think another thing that helped this promo is they definitely had already at this point now had like a shared history. Like when Foley says, you know, hey, I was campaigning for you for months before WWE offered you a job. Like anyone that would have been following the wrestling news knew that was true. You know, when he talks about, you know, do you want to be remembered for the five star match with a. you know, Samoa Joe, you know that Foley was in the crowd, like raving to people on radio interviews and newsletters afterwards about how that was one of the greatest matches he ever saw live. So like, again, it's another promo, like Punk's opening promo where, you know, there's some conviction to it because he's talking about things that we all know really did happen that are true. And, you know, I'll, you know, wrestling is always, I think at its best when it's taking real things and then incorporating them into the fake goofy world of fiction that is pro wrestling. But uh, Matt, that brings us to our main event, the Ring of Honor World title match. CM Punk successfully defended the title. He defeated Jay Lethal via submission in 20 minutes, 57 seconds, when he made Lethal tap out to the rear naked choke. As he was staring in Samoa Joe's face at ringside, Joe's own move, and the move he had done right before the rear naked choke, a muscle buster. Matt, we've seen Joe and Jay and, and uh, Punk wrestle before, but this is their last one. What do you think about this one? So in a lot of ways, this is your classic like underdog title def- shot match where you know the 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 underdog gets his big near falls, but in the end, we all know what's going to happen. Um, and it's worked in that formula, and it works well. Um, you know, if you just saw, um, you know, if you're listening to this when it's new, um, probably just recently watched Kenny Omega versus Jungle Boy, uh, which is you know similar kind of deal. Um, I will say I don't think anybody thought Jungle Boy would or could beat Kenny Omega on that night. On this night, because of the circumstances surrounding it, 
there was a little bit of belief in that crowd that's, that Jay Lethal could win this match. Like, there really was. And I think that changes a lot. Um, I also think that this match had some character elements to it that um, elevated it as well. Um, but, like, the match was worked pretty formula. Like, it starts off... Um, with Jay, you know, really going for it. Like he's, so Punk tries to shake his hand, but when the bell rings, Lethal, still holding on to Punk's hand, pulls Punk in, hits the dragon suplex immediately, and Punk escapes to the outside. So this is like the second big match that really starts hot and heavy, which I really appreciate because it just doesn't always happen in ROH. And, you know, Punk keeps rolling out of the ring, Lethal keeps having to chase him to beat on him. He does, like, a crazy Irish whip on the floor where Punk just falls to the ground and rolls into the guardrail, which um, I, uh, which I, you know, you don't see very often. I guess it was probably a botch, but I thought it looked really cool. And I thought the, so I thought the opening was great. Um, you know, Punk takes over. He slows things down, as, as you would. You know, even starts a mocking, um, let's go lethal chant, taunts the crowd a lot, you know, really getting into his role as a heel in a way that, you know, he definitely did not do when he was a heel previously, you know, where he would just taunt the crowd constantly. That's not what CM Punk was ever doing, right? Like, when he was a heel, you know, during the early days in ROH. Um, but that, you know, he's, yeah. so he's much more classic as a heel in the, in this point. he's um, He works over Lethal's neck because Lethal has the bad neck from the cop-killer-double-stomp combination. Um, at one point, like, like he does some cool moves to the neck, including at one point he puts Lethal on the top rope facing out, and before he goes for his suplex, he just, like, punches and elbows Lethal directly in the neck, which is a good use of that position. Um, but Lethal reverses uh, the belly-to-back into a crossbody, and at that moment, Samoa Joe appears at the ringside for moral support. And you know when Joe, when Joe is out there, that adds intensity to the crowd. So now at this point, the crowd starts getting up for it, um, and they trade punches, and Lee hits, uh, Lethal hits some combos, um, gets some two counts, um, rolls through a Punk reverse crossbody, gets a two count, uh, kicks out at one after Punk hits Welcome to Chicago. Um, you know, he, so he's... So he's I, actually, one thing I noticed about this, this sequence of this match... Even for ROH standards, there are a lot of reversals between reversing the crossbody, um, reversing the mule kick into the dra- uh, into the dragon suplex, um, reversing punk reversing an enzigiri. Uh, oh, excuse me, punk reversing the dragon suplex into an enzigiri, and uh, lethal eventually hits a fisherman suplex and goes right up to the for the diving headbutt and gets a big pop for the two count. Um, then they do a bunch of roll ups. Um, Punk lands on his feet after a German suplex attempt and hits the Shining Wizard, and Punk goes right into the Anaconda Vice, and that you know the crowd is really going nuts for Lethal at this point. And after Lethal makes the ropes, they try to do a repeat of the famous low-key homicide spot from Do or Die, where Joe slaps Lethal to fire him up. It's definitely not as dramatic as that one. Um, you know, the timing isn't quite as dramatic, and the slap is not quite as loud. Um, and Lethal's reaction is not as memorable, but still like a good homage spot, and I think it worked for the crowd. Um, and like at this point, like Lethal kind of hulks up a bit. Like Punk keeps ramming Lethal's head into the turnbuckle, but Lethal just kind of looks at him and fires up and hits a bunch of chops. Punk again avoids the dragon suplex. Um, and avoids a tornado DDT, but that's when Punk hits the muscle buster right in front of Joe. 
Then he just he covers, but he's like staring at Joe while he's covering. And as he's covering, he pulls Lethal up at two and just stares at Joe as he locks in the rear naked choke and Lethal taps out. That's just a damn good heel finish. You know, like yeah. just like the evil stare at Joe. Like I I that I mean, I didn't remember that, and that's a, just such a great finish right there. Um, you know, Lethal I don't think is hurt by it. You know, I think he's much helped by this match actually. And Punk just gets to be the biggest bastard in the world. They puts it puts heat on him. It puts heat on Joe. Um, I really like this a lot. Like I, I, you know, you know, maybe I'm overrating the show, but like I, I thought Punk was so good. I thought that again because of the circumstances, it made the match more believable. Even though it was a formula in a lot of ways, I thought those little touches made it something more. So I thought I thought this was a really good main event. Really, really good. Yeah, this this was one of my favorite matches on the show. Like, probably not not that much more than other matches, but I just thought this was a very good match. Um, I, 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 but I, I think it's it's funny. Like, I think it's almost like I can't separate the match from just like Punk's performance because I think, like you said, the match is good, but it's formula. But I think all. Just like the last match where it got better when Punk came out, this match, which was already better than that match, the Daniels-Cabana uh, match, when Joe comes out, there's a whole extra level of intensity. Like the crowd stop starts seem, seemingly buying into near falls more. They start popping louder. Joe's really good at being like a really intense guy yelling out advice. Like he, he really makes you believe that he really wants to see his guy win here. Like he's not just being like, come on, buddy. He's, he's like screwing like, you know, watch out, you know, do – and again, like you said, they repeat one of my favorite spots from Ring of Honor history, which is from the Do or Die show in 2003, where uh, Homicide's wrestling Joe for the title and Loki slaps Homicide when he's like hurt in the ropes to like psych him up. But that goes to one of my biggest criticisms of this match, though, which is normally I think one of Lethal's biggest strengths in this era of his career is he's really good at fiery babyface comebacks. On this show, like, they do the one-count kickout, which is referencing a great comeback from the last show, the Punk one-count kickout against Ares, and then they reference the do-or-die spot, and then Lethal's comeback is to just take, like, another 30 seconds of abuse from Punk in the corner, and he kind of starts no-selling it, and then he makes his comeback, and his comeback is just some a few, like, slow chops and punches, and it's kind of like he's so busy selling fatigue, he doesn't really fire up as much as I would like, and I just felt like the Joe spot and the one-count kickout, like, he should have had, like, an amazing comeback, and I feel like he doesn't really have that super fiery, over-the-top, like, getting the entire crowd just to lose their minds comeback, and I feel like that everyone else in the match had kind of set the stage for him to have that, and for whatever reason, he just doesn't put it forward but i still i thought it was a very well designed match i think it was really interesting having lethal hit his finisher at the very start and then the next few minutes being all about like punk immediately rolling to the outside of the ring and lethal trying to get him back to the ring for the cover but he can't so he just kind of settles for beating up punk on the outside for a few minutes and inside and how he dominates punk for the first few minutes which again we saw that with aj and rave earlier but this is much more novel because you're not used to seeing like Jay Lethal dominate the world champion CM Punk like that gives it a bit of a extra thing and yeah the work in the middle is good fun decent work and the end the way it plays sets up a Joe thing with you know Punk doing Joe spots and breaking the count and just the look on his face as he's just taunting Joe at the end I mean it, it's so good and 
one spot I will mention about two in this match is there is one of the scariest hot shots I have ever seen where uh, Punk gives a hot shot to Lethal. Normally, you know, when you get the hot shot where you get dropped throat first over the ropes, you take it around your throat and you, you have your hands break your fall. This looked like Lethal took the hot shot where the rope hit him like in the middle of the fa- of his face. And he like he immediately is grabbing his face on the mat. Like it looked like it hurt like like it, like it would hurt like a bitch. But yeah, this again, I think the thing I, I remember, I like Punk's performance even more than I like the match because like I, he is so gleeful and having such a good time and being just the biggest prick, just the biggest troll. Like I love at one point when he makes, starts to make his comeback in the match, he screams out, it's clobbering time. And he's just doing it in such a cocky way. And even like the callbacks like that are so great. But one other thing I want to make a quick little note of, there is a really deep cut reference that punk makes in 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 this match so at at one point in this match after joe's at ringside punk says to samoa joe fuck you sweet pea and people might not know what that's in reference to i can tell you what that's in yeah Yeah. so so samoa i mean cm punk had a live journal and so did Samoa Joe. But for some reason, Samoa Joe did not set up his own live journal. Like Punk gave him a, 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 I guess an extra live journal account he had around. And the name of that live journal account, which people often would laugh at, was X Sweet PX. So Punk is literally just referencing his live journal account name and saying, fuck you, Sweet P, <laughs> which is great. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the match. Um, and then finally we get um we end the show with again another in-ring promo or angle all sorts of things. After the match, Joe charges into the ring and he shoves Punk, gets in Punk's face. Foley comes back out and he put and he pushes Joe away from Punk, trying to separate them. Joe is pissed at this, he starts arguing with Foley and this allows Punk to hit Joe from behind with a knee which knocks Joe into Punk, knocks them both down. Uh Punk beats down Foley and Joe until James Gibson quickly runs in for the save. Punk pleads into the crowd, and Mick grabs the mic, saying he was talking on the phone with the owner and promoter, not of Ring of Honor, but of WWE, who told him if Punk can't do the right thing in the place that made him Ring of Honor, how can he expect to do the right thing for him in his promotion? At this point, Matt, this is one of my favorite moments of the night. At this point, a fan in what gets picked up far clearer and louder than Mick on the house mic, in a little pause in the promo, can be heard saying, Sounds like a lie. <laughs> well, yeah, and I want I want to add to that, like, because I, you know, like I, I think that's a clever storyline tactic to get Punk to come back the next night. But like, like that fan said, there is nothing less plausible <laughs> than the idea that Vince McMahon is going to be like, you got to do the right thing for this indie company, and like, <laughs> and and the concept, like, first of all, baby facing Vince McMahon to this crowd, like, come on, but also like, what? So what would Vince be saying, like? No, just keep working for Ring of Honor as long as you have the title. What if, like, you try to? You, what if you keep it for a year? Just, just stay at Ring of Honor. Like, is that what really what Vince is saying? So, like, it's incre- It's like the least plausible part of this whole angle. But like, you know, how else are you gonna justify Punk coming back, right? 
But yeah, but yeah, but I completely agree. Like, I know in wrestling we're supposed to have suspension of disbelief for certain things, and you know, wrestling's goofy at the best of times. But this was a little asking too much to believe that Vince McMahon, of all people, would one have more than maybe the barest knowledge of what Ring of Honor even is, let alone be very concerned that that CM Punk wouldn't do the right thing on the way out. Especially when Vince, anyone that's followed even a bit of Vince McMahon's history would know there's been plenty of times where he financially encouraged wrestlers to do just the thing punk is threatening to do in this angle, which is to fuck over the promotion on the way to WWE and to like not drop titles, not do last matches, all sorts of shit. So the idea that all of a sudden this man's getting the vapors over it. If, if you know any bit of history, you're like, it's, it's laughable. And as if, you, if, say, yeah, if you know any like bit of history, lie. sounds like a lie. Yeah, exactly. And, um, but anyway, the promo ends with Foley saying he was told that unless Punk wants to spend a lifetime in OVW or possibly Sunday Night Heat, he will get his ass in the ring tomorrow and put his title on the line. Joe and Foley at this point shake hands, and Gibson then shakes both their hands, and that's how we end the show. No backstage promos. So um, the Observer said this show also ended at 12.30 in the morning. So this show, I guess, went long, long live. But Matt, yeah, and also, and also, Friday night shows started later. Like they would start, like yeah, they would start the Saturday shows at like seven, seven thirty, and the, the the Friday shows would usually start at like eight, maybe a little after. So, like, I'm sure that's part of it too. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Like you, I appreciate that they went the extra mile, even if it's as unbelievable to give a reason for Punk to keep wrestling in Ring of Honor. But one thing I want to ask you about this whole thing, Matt, is I think all the stuff they're doing with Punk and Joe is great. But do you feel like they're pushing a Joe match too much when we we're never going to get it? Like we're going to get them in a four way together. But I feel like every time they teach Punk's going to wrestle a mystery guy. The crowd instantly wants to see Joe. And I get why you wouldn't want to do a, another Joe match. Cause maybe if you're Punk and, and Joe, maybe you feel like you don't, you want to leave it at the nice, neat trilogy. You don't want to try and top yourself again. Maybe, you know, Joe was the pure champion at this time. So maybe you don't want a situation where Punk beats Joe, you know, your other champion when he can't get the win back. Maybe you don't want to do a screwy finish or a draw at that point, although they will do a draw with Christopher Daniels. But it, I know as a fan at the time, I so thought that we were – I thought Joe might be the guy to beat Punk for the title, and I was like, well, they're definitely going to do another Joe Punk match, and it's going to be so awesome. And I do remember, as great as this entire storyline was, it's it's kind of like you know, like Joe and Key. You know, They tease it at times, and they never give it to you. Um, so so you, you want to know if I, if I think they should have done the match? Like, like, or, or they, do or, you think that they should have? Te- do you think they should have teased so much Joe Punk stuff like they're doing on this show, where I think you come away from this thinking they're going to have a match, knowing that all they're going to give you is they're going to interact in a four way at the end of Punk's run? You know, I was thinking about this. You know, as we were talking about all these angles, like throughout as we were recording this, um, and I think I've come to the conclusion that it was fine with the way they did it. Like, I, I, I think. If they had had more time with Punk, I think doing the Joe match might have been the right idea. Although even then, I'm not sure. Like I think they gave they 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 made you want a lot of different things. Joe was one of those things, and I think it's important for wrestling companies to give the crowd what they want. But I don't think that it has that has to be true 100 percent of the time. I think. They're playing off the fact that these two have this historic rivalry, and I think sometimes it's okay to leave you wondering what if. Um, because 
that rivalry, you know, was so perfect, and I don't know how you ever do another match after that third match, especially so soon after. I mean, this really was, what, only like six months, seven months after yeah. that that trilogy ended. So I think they – I mean, it's not like the four-way was like a glancing thing. Like, they, they that, was, that was a long four-way where they interacted a lot. So it's not like Joe never got a chance to have his title shot. But I do think it was probably more important in the time they had with Punk to pay off – the Daniels thing, which, you know, you could argue whether they did or they didn't, but it was more important. And and to get Gibson into that mix, um, since they were Gibson was the guy they were gonna go with. And um so and I they, they did tease stuff with all three of those guys. And eventually they do a, th- a four way with all three of those guys. So I'm okay with how they did it. I understand what you're saying though, and I understand why someone might not be okay yeah. with it. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent either way on this, but it is something you know I am conflicted on because I I just remember being really wanting to see this match at the time this was happening. I wanted to see one more of them, but I could I could see again this might not even been a booking thing because again I could see Punk and Joe even saying I don't want to have to top this again, especially like you were saying so soon after the last one, and I could see sometimes in life when you do something that's so good. The idea of like maybe it's best just to leave it done so we don't risk like tainting this. Right. So. I could even see them. I could even see Punk and Joe saying to Gabe, you know, I could see this being a Gabe call for the reasons I mentioned, or I could see Joe and Punk saying to Gabe, like, maybe it's better that we don't go back to this because right. it's just going to be too tough to. Although you would have had one really interesting wrinkle, which would have been with Punk as champion, you could have done a story where just flip the story of the other matches where instead of Punk wanting to win the title but getting screwed by these time limit draws, you could have now Punk desperately fighting for a time limit draw because it would retain his title, which they end up basically doing with the Daniel story. But either way, um, that ends the show. That ends Sign of Dishonor. Um, Matt, what did you think about this show? Obviously, it was a different kind of show. I mean, we've seen occasionally um, – Ring of Honor do shows like this, but not very often, where it almost feels like an episode of, like, what if Ring of Honor was a TV show? You get the opening promo that's long. It sets up the main event. You've got, like, an unannounced impromptu main event. You've got an angle at the end of the show that guy directly sets up the very next show. Like, there's no backstage promos. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a different feeling Ring of Honor show. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could tell as we went through the matches that I was higher on pretty much every match except for the Daniels match than you were. Um, and so I really thought this was a fantastic show. Like I, I thought, I mean, Punk was just, just such a star performance. Just like I was, I was just over the moon with how good he was on this show. Every single thing he touched was gold. Um, and I think that alone makes this a thumbs up show, but I also really love the four way. Uh, I thought there were some other good, you know, the, 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 um, the first half of the show, the wrestling wasn't great you know it was there was but it was okay and um you know like the uh the aj rave match again you know i didn't think it was great but it was i thought it was still pretty good i uh you know the 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 the, the kind of lousy matches were extremely short all of the ex- what normally i would say was excessive mic work was excellent the only downer match for me was cabana and daniels and that was helped by the fact that punk was out there being so entertaining um, so I thought this was just a, you know, kind of a home run show in terms of what they were trying to do. Um, you know, a really great way to kick off this uh, this this run of Punk, you know, being the the champion everyone's trying to get the belt back from. I I it was better than I remembered, honestly. I really really liked it. So I did not like the show as much as you. I thought it was a a good show, but 
yeah, if you just listen to our reviews, I think you would know that I didn't like it as much because I thought this was another one of those Ring of Honor shows where like most of the major matches were like three and a quarter, three and a half stars, and the talent is so good now, I kind of want at least one match to be like a notch or two above that. I, I, but I thought, again, there's a lot of those matches of that quality on that show, which always makes for a good show. But the thing I'll say about this show, which is, even though I did not like the show as much as you, I think this might be one of the greatest one-night performances of CM Punk's career. I think in terms of showing somebody, like, what Punk can do, like, in all different aspects of his career. Like, this is not the best match to show, but it is a good match that I think he does a really good job at. But in terms of the angle work... Just the confidence and character he projects, the mic work, even, you know, the, the, the cabana match him working on the outside. Like, I, I think this is one of the, and just the confidence and the fun he's having. I, I think this is a great show just to see Punk like at his best in like every asset of his game almost. And I, I think that's what I'll always remember the show for. I'll remember it. I used to remember it just because, oh, it's the show where he signs the contract on the belt. But I think now that I've rewatched it, I'll really remember this as like, I think one of like just the best one night performances I've ever seen that guy have in I that's really that's really good, cool really ter- cool to see it I get in terms of like not just outside the you know outside the ring and inside you know in terms of character work and everything this is probably the best one night performance anyone in ROH has ever had Yeah and, at this and point. again one of the f- very few guys in in the Gabe history of Ring of Honor that you could build a show around an angle and just his character work and the intrigue and not give away a big match. Because, again, like you were saying, people were a little disappointed probably at first when they saw Jay Lethal. But yet I don't think people would be disappointed with the show at the end. And they didn't announce a world title match at the start of the show. And just, you know, they they, they Punk is one of the only guys I think they've ever had access to that could make that work. And he did. Yep. And, yeah. So – that brings us to the end of the show. If you want to get in touch with us through the years at gmail.com, that's T-H-R-O-H. We're also on Twitter. I'm at Trevor Dame. Matt is at Mayor MGF. There's a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs forum. And, uh, yeah, next time on the show, the summer of the summer of punk will continue with the second half of this New York double shot, Escape from New York, which is a loaded card on paper. Um, you've got Punk versus Roderick Strong. You've got Aries versus Joe for the third time in the year, but this time for the pure title. You've got Nigel versus Colt in a stipulation match. Their feud continuing. The tag titles are up for grab. You know, the Carnage crew are, are challenging. So you know that the title's not going to change hands with the Carnage crew, but it still might be worth watching. And, uh, yeah, you got another big star studded four way with James Gibson in there again. I mean, you've got, uh, Big show for the next show, and I heard some guy named Matt Fleursting was even in attendance, so we'll get to see, compare and contrast your memories of the show to uh, your new rewatching memories of the show. That's right. And so, that will be that. Matt, do you have anything else to say? Um, I will just say um, to um, have a sign of dishonor. No, I don't know. I, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I have nothing to say, as always. Dishonor someone in your family this summer and and keep hydrated, keep cool. And until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.